You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 427. You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. With your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG Headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 28th of May, 2020. Today's episode, a Pakistani Airlines jet crashes before landing in Karachi. A Delta Airlines first officer becomes incapacitated during an international flight. More news, your feedback, and in today's Plane Tales, the Ian Palmer Interviews Part 3. So get all settled in, crate tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger. Flight 427 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger. He's an Emmy Award-winning TV and radio reporter currently at the number one all-news station in the nation, 1010 Winds in New York City. Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and answering your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, former U.S. Air Force pilot, now a pilot for a a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, Georgia, for the last 31-plus years. I'm joined today by my awesome co-hosts. I'm sorry, nope, we don't have any awesome co-hosts here today. But we do have, from her lakeside home in the Carolinas, I'm kidding, of course, uh, Dr. Skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, her name is Dr. Steph. But not awesome anymore. You're awesome. Aww, so sad. Hey, Captain Jeff, good to see you. <laughs> Looking forward to the show today. It's going to be a good one, I can tell already. Yes. And also joining us from his mobile studio in Cincinnati, Ohio. I think that's where you are. No, Baltimore. Close enough. Okay. In Baltimore, Ohio. (laughs) No, wait. That's not right either. Uh, He is a world traveler, airplane mechanic, Breitling Cognoscenti, fitness hound, and international air freight captain. It's Miami and now Baltimore Rick. Uh, Baltimore Rick. Baltimore, Ohio Rick. How is everybody doing? It's going to be a good one. Looking forward to it. All right, and we have... Oh, we don't want that one. Here's the right one from across the pond in his studio in the English countryside. Professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, retired captain for an international airline based in London. It's Captain Nick. Retard. <laughs> so, it was perfect because we didn't hear a single thing that Nick said. Is, is, which is actually perfect. Is Nick there? there again? Yes. I'll shout this time, shall I? Yeah, I said, we... I'm outnumbered five to one this week, so I'm going to have trouble holding up my end. Aha, uh-huh, that's. I'm not saying that's anything. That's what she said. All right. <laughs> and also. Joining us from the northwest Atlanta suburbs, barbecue master, motorcycle rider, yacht 
skipper and underwater photographer and captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier, Captain Dana. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I think I'm going to go ahead and put my seatbelts on because it's going to be one of those rides today, I'm sure. Hang on to your hats. It's going to be a bumpy ride. Speaking of bumpy rides... And also joining us in Studio 1A with Captain Jeff, it's Captain Jeff. (laughs) Another one. If you didn't have enough old, gray-haired, mustached Captain Jeffs, well, now you got another one here. He is a 737 Captain, former R... No, not RAF. USAF F-15 Eagle driver. And... uh, Wow, so many more things. Great friend. Oh, really? Captain Jeff. Thrilled being here. Kind of surprised, Jeff. So uh, just glad to make it today. Sweet. Hey, you know what? I think we should do something they call the news. Here we go. Stand by for news. We're going to start off with something that has been prominent in aviation news. And it was this crazy crash of an A320, a Pakistan International Airlines uh, A320 at Karachi on May 22nd, 2020. Uh, Let's see. They were performing flight 8303 from Lahore or Lahore. Help me up with that one, anybody? Lahore, I think. Lahore. It was right the first time. Oh, okay. Yeah, Lahore to Karachi oh. and with 91 passengers, a crew had aborted the approach to Karachi due to problems with extension of the nose landing gear. In fact, when the crew read the landing clearance for runway 25 left back, the sounds of a master warning can be heard. Of course, we're not sure that's the reason. We're going to talk about that here in a minute. Anyway, it crashed. They're still trying to figure out what happened here, but they do know that the Aircraft came in uh, from the east at a, a pretty high rate of descent, and they did touch down on runway 25 left at Lahore, um, but uh, looks like the engine cowlings touched down on the runway, and they performed a go-around, they went back around, and the engines failed and they did not make it back to the airport a second time around and crashed in a heavily populated area, urban area of uh, Karachi. Um, and I'm sorry, I think I said Lahore. They did not land at Lahore. They landed at Karachi. Um, rescue and recovery services were at the crash site. It took about five hours um, to put out the fires after the crash. Um, let's see, I'm scrolling down. I don't know if we have the very latest information or not, but, uh, I'm going to stop talking and let some of my educated and awesome co-hosts chip in with, uh, maybe some updates on this investigation. Not everybody at the same time, huh? <laughs> I'm waiting no. for the airport. I figured, I figured Nick was going to chime in on yeah, that. Really. Yeah, absolutely. I was. I was just going to say I've been to. I've been to. Uh, I've been to Karachi. I've, I've flown into that airport a couple of times, and uh, in my experience, you know, Pakistani controllers are, are are pretty good. You know, 
radar vectors to the ILS is fine. I looked at the uh, at the approach chart for the uh, runwind question here. Uh, airport sea level, a little bit of high terrain to the north. Really, nothing that would um, you know jump out uh, jump out at me um, from the get go. Um, I did look at some of the uh, some of the data, the ADSC auto pen, uh, automatic defense surveillance data available, as Captain Jeff uh, uh, mentioned. High rate of descent into the runway during the first approach there. And issues with the landing gear. Um, I don't know what the uh, uh, how the uh, landing gear warning system works on the on, on Airbus uh, airframes, but on on Boeing's, you basically have two, you know, uh, conditions. One is if you are under 800 feet radio altitude with uh, one of your thrust levers at idle, that's you know going to generate an alarm. And then the other one is landing flap, flap 25 or flap uh, 30 with landing gear up, regardless of altitude, that'll also generate an alarm. There, there's other other nuances there uh, that are uh, fleet specific. Um, but I mean, other than that, I, I really don't know how you get to a position like the one these uh, pilots found, found themselves in. I, I uh, I, I'd like to. I'd like to really hear what what Nixter has to say, being the uh, the uh, Airbus representative here. Well, the Airbus is uh, two warnings in a very similar way, Rick. One is uh, based on the EGPWS. Little shout: too low gear, too low gear. When you uh, haven't got the gear down on the other cruise aircraft generated, which uh, is a warning and not just a, a bell that sounds. Uh, the whole, the landing gear system. Uh, switch lights up and there's a big red arrow there indicating you've got a problem and uh you know it the the master warning will go off a big caption will come up uh so there's plenty of visual cues um so i don't think this is an airbus problem i think you'll find that this is a crew problem uh and i think you'll find that the crew managed to make this approach completely ignoring what was going on around them in the cockpit. Uh, and uh, they uh, tried to land the airplane with all these warnings going. And I think we all know that when you end up in a very stressful, uh, rushed approach, you're not doing your checklist properly because you're high and you're fast and you're desperately trying to get everything out so you can uh, land. I don't know why you would want to land at the you know on an approach that is blatantly unstable but but uh, it appears they did but it's very easy to shut out the whole world and become so focused on your goal of putting the airplane on the threshold that you can ignore oh, the most blatant of warnings and we've heard aircraft flying into the ground with the uh, uh, pull-up warnings going and people are just ignore them uh, and it is one of the failings of the human in the, our brain when it becomes maxed out. It's quite capable of turning off your ears or turn, you know, becoming tunnel visioned almost and, and ignoring Absolutely. things that would normally get your attention. I, I think we're going to find that human factors are going to be at the, the basis of this, certainly the first approach. Yeah, I don't I think there's any. 100%. Yeah. yeah, I don't think there was any indication at all that there was any problem with the airplane. But with the crew flying the airplane, I think is everything is pointing toward. But of course, they're still investigating it. But I do, I do remember hearing a couple of conversations uh, from uh, Airbus pilots and uh, the like that were saying that this chime that we hear 
in one of the air traffic control transmission or communications from the airplane to ATC, uh, they just automatically jumped on the fact, well, that chime means that it's the, you know, the gear is not down and locked. Well, I think that that's what, what do they call that? A high level chime or a high level or something level three. Um, from memory, there is a specific bell for the gear. Mm-hmm. It's not the same as the master warning. Now, okay. someone's going to correct me because my memory isn't perfect, and it's been, geez, well over a year now since I was even in a, an Airbus cockpit. So, uh, yeah, but, I mean, regardless whether it's a master warning or and a specific chime for the gear. Uh, Captain Alice's 750-foot radio alti- uh, altimeter master warning for gear, then lower down for EG PWS will yeah. trigger. <clears throat> the question I have is, and I don't know, um, Captain Al might be able to chime in on this, is this flight from about uh, four minutes out was at 10,000 feet. Mm-hmm. And they had vertical descent rates of in excess of 8,000 feet per minute or 6,000 feet per minute. Get which one it was. Yeah, it was like but around 7,000, I think. Yeah, uh, mass. Yeah, somewhere yeah. right around. It was it was ridiculous all the way down. And not only that, their airspeed was in excess of, uh, at one point, uh, below 10,000, well, a little bit above 250 knots, but pretty much the whole way down over 200 knots. So I don't know if airspeed plays into the system on the Airbus or not. Um, I would imagine it wouldn't. Uh, below uh, 750 feet, but they touched down three times on the runway with the engines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, so, and I guess the question is, did did they ever get the gear down to begin with, or did they have it down, and then when they attempted to go around, another report that I heard, or there was a rumor that the first officer had retracted the landing gear before the airplane was actually flying. Wouldn't, wouldn't explain why the airplane touched on down. the engines three times on yeah. the runway and halfway down the runway to start off with. I mean, I think it's taxiway D is in Dixie. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is uh, pretty much where the last touchdown point is. That's halfway down, well over halfway down the runway. Mm-hmm. Um, a and lot of energy to dissipate, absolutely. A lot of energy. And if the nose gear is what was indicated here was the problem, then obviously the mains would have touched down in the... Mm-hmm engines would not have contacted the ground so exactly. the high rate of descent the high altitude you know the high rate of descent the high airspeed and the unstable approach I, I agree with nick and the, the the pilots probably became so focused on just trying to get this airplane on the ground instead of just doing the smart thing and go around well before you know well before they even got close to the runway because they were just i, I don't think they did anything right here um it, it it's pretty scary that an Air, an Airbus that is so well designed for you know let's say <clears throat> um, you know second and third world countries for operation that is supposed to be self protectant in a lot of ways that these guys just ignored almost everything um, and I think it's going to be nothing but pilot error. Yeah, I think so, and it's and it's we were talking about this um, you know a couple of weeks ago about how sometimes on on. Heavy crews, you know, the, the kind of flying that I've been doing for the last couple of years, uh, you find yourself with a third and even fourth pilots uh, sitting behind you during the takeoff and landing phases of the flight. And uh, and the seat that's behind the captain and the first officer is right in the middle. Uh, we call that the smart seat for that very reason. Because when you're when you find yourself, as Nick said, uh, in a high stress, high workload type situation, you tend to uh, you tend to, uh, you know, just shut everything else out. And get focused on attempting or achieving a, a in this case, a landing that uh, that uh, turned out to be, you know, not 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 the right thing to do. Another thing, to Dana's point um, about the landing gear not being down, um, 
Uh, and then I'll, I'll touch on what, what uh, stabilized approach means because you know, we're talking about that, but I'm, I'm, I'm not sure everybody really understands what that means. Um, just like, just like flaps, uh, the landing gear has a, uh, a maximum speed at which you can extend it and a maximum speed at which you can fly with it in the extended position. Um, it's happened to me many times coming into say, for example, uh, runway three, three, uh, the three threes in, uh, in, uh, Seoul and in Incheon and in, uh, South Korea where, uh, ATC tends to leave you a little high. And uh, one procedure, you know, not well, not procedural, but one one tool that you have is in fact the landing gear. So well, if if you find yourself high on the path, uh, yeah, you can put the speed brakes out, you can start putting flaps out, and all that. But the landing gear is also a very good uh, a very good tool to get down quickly. Um, and uh, if if they were you know above, I I I don't know what the what the speed for the landing gear extension is on on Airbuses, but uh, I it's I usually two fifty knots. Uh, yeah, two fifty. But there's okay. a uh, there's a speed switch. Uh, in mine, it was about 280. I think on the 320, it's around 265. That isolates the hydraulics, so you can't put it down much above that anyway. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. And and on on Boeing's, mm -hmm. uh, you don't have a, 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 a hydraulic isolation for the landing gear. You do have one for the flaps, however, on the 747-8 and the triple seven seven eights. So that's another 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 thing to look uh, to look at there. You know the the high speed, un, the inability to put the landing gear down, mm -hmm. and then talking about uh, stabilized approaches. What is stabilized approach? So so uh, stabilized approach criteria basically means that um, we as flight crews have to get to certain gates along the approach uh, within certain parameters. And the big one, the important one. So, so for example, talking about it, and it's not really a, a set gate but it's a good it's a good um it's a good cross check for example you get to uh, uh 40 miles from the field a good idea is to get to 40 miles to 10,000 feet and 250 knots that's that's one gate that's going to give you a a a nice managed decelerated approach profile the energy of the airplane is going to be you know not out and not out of control you're going to have plenty of buffer both on the high side and the low side of the 240 knots obviously you're below 10,000 feet you want to stay below 250 if you need to get a little uh down a little faster you know you increase the speed to 250 bring the speed brakes out bring the nose of the airplane down you know if, if you're getting too uh if you're getting too low bring the speed back the airplane nose goes up so you can manage the energy because approach uh, uh, flying an airplane really in the approach environment of an airport's all about managing the energy you don't want to dive and drive and drag the airplane at three thousand feet prior to glide slip intercept but you don't want to be you know three thousand feet above the path either so it's about managing that air that 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 energy and staying within that lane there now the big big gate that we talk about as airline pilots as far as it, as far as flying a safe approach is concerned is is, is the thousand foot gate and the thousand foot gate basically what that means is that at a thousand feet for the approach to be stabilized or stable which is an actual call out in in, in our in our airline and i'm sure other airlines as well uh you have to be fully configured for landing that means landing gear has to be down the flaps have to be in the landing position the uh the thrust has to be spooled up so on speed the speed, your approach speed, can't be any faster than your reference speed plus 15 or 20, depending on the airline, and no less than reference speed plus uh, minus zero, and all your checklists have to be complete. If you get to that point and you're not stable, any, any of those parameters isn't complete or isn't done, 
then you have to do a go around. And it's a no-fault policy. You have to go around, you go around. You can always come back, like, like the song says. So yeah. that's what stabilized and, me. And brilliant, and, and you know, as, as much um, as you can manage your energy, there are scenarios, and I think this may have been one, that no matter what you do, how much you throw out to try to decrease or diminish that energy with the gear out and everything else, if that's possible— uh, there, there are scenarios where you just have too much energy. You cannot get rid of you it. And you just have to go around. Laws of physics. Exactly. So exactly you right. have to make that decision early on. And I think it seems we don't know yet because we, you know, don't know all the facts, uh, that they got way behind the, uh, the ball on this one and got to the point where, yeah, I can, I can do, I've done this before. I can make it. <laughs> uh, but, uh, it, it didn't work out. Um, yeah. Yeah, another thing I was saying. I'm sorry. The last thing I'll say here, uh, I, I do know for because I remember asking about this, and and I think Captain Al confirmed it on Airbuses on the 320s. As long as you have the autopilot on, the autopilot engaged, you put out uh, your your spoilers, and they o- they only come out 50. percent The only way for you to have full spoiler deployment on the 320 series is to disconnect the autopilot. That's the only way you'll have uh, full spoiler deployment. Now I'll I'd, I'd love for him to to, you know, to cross check me on that to stay above fifty percent, but I'm 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 almost certain that's the case on the three twenties. So that'd be another factor, perhaps. You know, something else to what you were talking about, Nick, is the the gates, and and this is kind of lost in the world of uh, modern aviation, especially with you know Jeff and I, you know, even with the the uh, um, equipment in technology we had on the 88, uh, I found that that was lost as well. But uh, Jeff and I can, and I'm sure. Uh, Captain Jeff sitting next to Jeff can all relate to this um, is the three to one. All right. So it's something that's always in my mind uh, and we have become slaves to the technology. So we don't really tend to think about the three to one as much as uh, we should. Um, And clearly, obviously they were well above the three to one, but three to one basically is for every uh, mile you get 300 feet. Right, so you're three miles out, you're 900 feet. If you're five miles out, you're 1,500 feet. You know, 30 miles out, you're 10,000 feet. Right, so that's you know, that's that's a good rule of thumb, and and, and it and it works from from time you uh, start descent all the way down to the ground. So if you you know they tell you go from flight level three five zero to two five zero, three to one, 10,000 feet. Right, you can do the math on that real quick. Um, so, anyways, <clears throat> that's. Uh, it, it's pretty sad. And, and what I was trying to get towards is that the fact that I don't know with them being such high speed, whether they were in tune enough to, because uh, the limitations on the airspeed for the flaps one, two, three, and four, I think it is on the Airbus, uh, they were right around the limit speeds and in an excess of the limit speed. So either one or two things happened. They either didn't, never got the flaps out or they exceed the limitations on the aircraft and i, I don't know how one is 230 on the 320 yeah two thir- th- i think it was 220 captain now can maybe mm-hmm. correct me on that i think it's 220 or 230 but anyways they were above that speed for quite a bit of the time and if they didn't get the flaps out how does that affect the landing gear warning system on the airbus i don't know well, it certainly doesn't affect the uh, EGPWS one, mm. and we could hear that the landing warning system was going in the ATC transmission, so obviously uh, they had it active. It, the aircraft was telling them. So 
I don't think uh, that. Do we? We I just heard ding, much. ding, ding. Was that yeah, the landing that, gear or was that the flaps? It's the it's the master caution. It's the, it's a it, it is a warning that you would get if you got a fire, uh, or in this case, if you got a landing gear. A glance down at the uh, ecam and it will tell you well, what it what the warning is. Uh, but yeah. yeah, it's a master warning, and uh, the gear will be there. Gear not down. Is master warning also for overspeeding the flaps? Uh, you'll be into the barber's pole. I think it's got a different noise, but you know we're all talking about not specifics here. We're talking about a general lack of awareness. Uh, as soon as you get any warning, you look in and you try and assess what the problem is. I don't think the guy was misunderstanding warnings, whether it be flaps or gear. I think he just got so far behind the aircraft. Uh, and he he had one aim in mind, which was to put it on the ground, that he had was not going to ignore anything. He, I don't think he was in a position that he was going to um, acknowledge any problems he was having. He had become so single minded in right. his uh, his aim, um, and in- you know most of us would step back and uh, throw an orbit in, or if we had a decent first officer, he would step in and go. We ain't going to do this, Skipper. Let, let, we need an orbit. We need to go around. We need to think about this and do it again. Uh, but neither of them appear to have done this. You know, in, in something to what Rick was talking about, the third guy in the middle, very much uh, very much uh, the training world is you get a, a much better view than being the two guys in the seat. So when an instructor is sitting there and evaluating and looking to what a uh, what two pilots are doing, it's very easy for an instructor to be able to see what, you know, kind of take the whole world view, whereas the two pilots sitting in the seats get so focused. So that's just another uh, um, verification that these guys probably were just so focused, uh, they they just didn't see the whole world view. And I tell you, in, in training scenarios, I mean, you, you get you get off and you step off uh, out of the box, and um, after a high workload uh, situation, you 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 debrief with your FO, your captain, or whatever the case may be, and you start going, "What the hell were we thinking?" You know, it's yeah. It's just, how, how do mm-hmm. we let ourselves get into that? Exactly. No, it's like it's like Nick was saying. You know, the human brain prioritizes the most um, pressing task at hand, and everything else falls by the wayside. And it's really hard to train your brain not to be focused on just one thing at a time. I know on the Boeing's though that uh, we do not get a warning if you overspeed the flaps, even if you're in the, no. in the uh, barber pole. I don't know if that's different on the bus, but uh, unfortunately, speaking from experience, I've oversped the flaps, and there's no clacker. Yeah, there's no, there's no, there's yeah, no. you'll, you'll <clears> get a warning either. The, the captain uh, says you do get the same oral warning with the flaps. I yeah, guess. on the tri- the triple seven, however, on uh, when you are above uh, flap clacker speed uh, for flap uh, for flap one, the uh, the the um, the system will not let you extend flaps at all. Just like the, uh, just like the the landing. It's got the lockout on the. Yeah, yeah. so the hydraulic system is. Um, well, uh, I'm assuming the 320 is similar to the 33340. In some flap settings, uh, if you try and overspeed the flap, the flap will automatically move up to the setting above to try mm-hmm. and protect you. Um, but and then if you slow back down again, it'll re-extend. Right. So but I, I it does that, express, but is that for is that for uh, is that for landing flap uh, only, or is that for every notch of flaps? Uh, well, I, I, I'm pretty sure it's uh, three into two, 
Uh, it's probably full into three. I don't think yeah. two goes into one because uh, we have a we have a flap re- re- uh, flap load release system on the on every bone I've ever flown from the you know six, yeah six seven it's and, called the same thing the same thing. In yeah. fact, um, uh, that uh, Southwest uh, incident they had in Midway when they came in a little hot. Uh, they actually one of the reasons why they ended up floating a little bit further on down the runway they thought is because as they crossed the threshold, the flaps were on flap relief mode. And as the airspeed kept dropping, the flaps went out of relief mode, increasing that curvature of the wing, making them float and touching down further on down the runway. That, that was an issue with flap load relief. But that, that's what it's there for. I mean, you're, you're supposed to you know, stay below that flap placard before that not to happen. So. You know, the bottom line is, is I think it's pretty scary that this sophisticated of an airplane was flown the way it was flown. And these guys just completely and totally ignored every warning they got. That's the scary part. Well, it kind of goes back to, if you want to talk about test saturation and stuff, look at the uh, Lion Air accident with the Max. Same kind of thing. They had more bells and whistles going off than they knew mm-hmm. what to do with. and. They just lost track of what was the priorities, and you get focused in on one thing, and it killed them. And Captain Al said, the continuous repetitive chime, uh, the ding, 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 is the same for many faults. Only by reading ECAM will you know what the issue is. So we don't actually know. I mean, they may have had another issue in the cockpit that was beyond uh, the landing gear or the flaps. I mean, who knows what was actually going on that they may have been focusing on. And that's and the thing about uh, the thing about these particular types of alarms, um, you know, the the the, the dings and the and the Airbuses and the 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 master warning uh, and Boeing's. Um, the only way really to get rid of these alarms is obviously by hitting the master warning reset button right in front of you. I'm talking Boeing's, but the only way to get rid of the actual condition, the actual um, uh, message you get on ICAS, which is the equivalent to ECAM on Airbuses, uh, ICAS is engine indicating crew alert and system. As where ECAM is uh, electronic centralized aircraft monitoring, if I'm not mistaken, is to you know actually get rid of whatever is causing that alarm. You, know, you look at you look at the you look you look at the condition, um, and the only way to get rid of that is by addressing it. And if it's a fire, put, putting the fire out. If you're you know the gear is not down below 800 feet and you're at uh, thrust idle, put the gear down. Stuff like that. So the only the only way to get rid of a master warning you know level alarm is by addressing it. Either by correcting it, you know, instant uh, by putting the gear down, for example, or by running the checklist and getting rid of the uh, failure that way. So, well, I don't think on a Boeing you can sign it, silence the gear warning horn. If no, you don't you, have no, the gear can't. down, the only way no, to no, get no. that horn to shut no, off yeah, is to put yeah, the I'm, gear I'm down. For example, say for example, uh, that's what I'm saying. You, yeah. But you silence it by putting the landing gear down. Yeah. By doing what you're so, yeah, doing. Say master, for example, if you, if, if you, if you disconnect the autopilot and you only hit it once, the alarm's going to go off. But the only way to get rid of that is by hitting it a second time. Stuff. That's what I'm. That's what I'm saying. So Nick, yeah, I mean, a the good uh, instance of um, you know, as your your father talked about, just light that cigarette and take a moment and regroup. And oh, was there absolutely. anything so pressing here that they had to? I don't think these guys uh, didn't I mean, have enough time really, to smoke a cigarette fact, on this one. I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or the watch. That, uh, they Wine. they persisted the approach uh, when yeah. they were clearly yeah. not really I mean, in a position point, to get in. That, but, you yeah. Know. And they started getting warnings. That's the time to, uh, yep, go sit back for a minute and go, what the hell's going on here? Let's go around and we'll sort it out. We, we haven't really covered uh, the ultimate cause of the crash. Having touched down on the engine pods, 
uh, they most likely did sufficient damage to the engines to cause them to fail. They didn't last very much longer afterwards. I think they probably uh, did about three touchdowns uh, on those uh, pods. Now, the, the danger is that the bottom of those engines uh, where the gearboxes lie. They're not smack on the bottom. They're actually offset to one side. But uh, if you smack the bottom of your uh, engine on the ground, there's two things that can happen. You can either distort the engine such that the uh, blades start to rub. And these modern engines have such fine tolerances for tip the tips of the blades clearing the inside of the cowling, and that's an efficiency um, factor. So the closer those blades are to the uh, the inside of the cowling, the more efficient the air passing through will be because there's no escape. It has to go around the blade and not underneath it. Um, so th there's that. Either the, the uh, cowlings became distorted and the blades started to rub, or they physically damaged the gearbox, which controls oh, it's got the engine oil, the FADEC, um, uh, all the systems basically to run the engine. Now they managed to get enough power out of the engines to climb and get 2,000 feet effectively downwind, but uh, that's when more or less simultaneously, by the sounds of it, both engines failed. At that point, they had the gear down, uh, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm not quite sure why they had to put the gear down at that point. I mean, all right, you could... You know, if you're flying a circuit, I guess you're going to put the gear down downwind. But uh, without the with the gear down um, and without engines, they just didn't have enough performance to reach the runway. Um, you see a movie of them coming in, and this is credit to Airbus. The aircraft is at a very high nose angle. It's obviously they're trying to stretch the glide, and the aircraft's not stalling because it's being protected. At least I assume they've got uh, full protection still available to them. Um, so that was the ultimate cause of the crash. The fact that they touched downs on the cowlings, damaged the engine sufficient, they couldn't make the circuit all the way around and land it back on. But mm. the reason they did that, of course, goes back to our initial discussion. Exactly right, and uh, and uh, and to your point there, Nick Sturry, the obviously the uh, engines quitting, um, uh, and one of the pictures uh, you can see the the, the ram air turbine deployed, um, mm -hmm. telling you that in fact the engines had failed. Now I don't know how how, how the rat works on airbuses. Uh, probably in this case on a, a double AC uh, uh, generator failure. So yeah, so it's uh, so it's electrical, not hydraulic. Well, it is a hydraulic rat, but uh, the hydraulic system uh, will power an electrical generator, uh, an emergency so generator to power the air, the the whole of the aircraft. So you get right. the rat gives you hydraulic power, and the hydraulics give you electrical power to hmm. continue to glide the aircraft. Yeah, similar, similar to as well as batteries, of course. Now this is a stupid question. Could they have had enough of a vertical descent rate when they hit the runway if the gear were down to scrape the engines? Uh, I wouldn't have thought so. I've never heard I wouldn't that. think no. so either. I think it would no end way. up driving. You'd bend the airplane and drive the mains right through the right through the wings. And so I think yeah. there would be marks yeah. of the gear as well on the runway. Yeah, yeah and, and yeah. I mean, Airbus is being certified in the States as well by the FAA. They have to comply with Part uh, Part 25, FAR Part 25 landing um the landing section of it says that uh, you're supposed to touch down at max landing weight at 800 feet a minute, and the airport, the airplane is supposed to, to you know, to take it. 
and at max takeoff weight at 300 feet a minute and the airplane's about to take it. So, so, uh, so my whole point here is that there is no way that landing gear was down. And they touched down three times in that round. Oh, wait, I agree with you 100%. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I yeah think, there's uh, no way. And they, ex- they they went ahead and extended the landing gear at some point after they went around. And my, my thought maybe until the point that the FO didn't really it, retract the landing gear as much as when he, they did the go around, he extended the landing gear. That's just my thought process and why that landing gear at that point would be down. Mm. Yeah, uh, we we don't know enough. I think really I don't. because I know we don't. The the uh, the someone threw a theory out that uh, they'd had the gear down. They decided to go around. The FO lifted the gear, and then they settled onto the pods. Now they settled on the pods halfway down the runway, so that's feasible. If they touched down in the normal position, decided they were too fast to to uh, land, and decided to go around. One of them did one action. One of them did a different action, decided to try and stray, stay down. It is feasible, I suppose, that you could have ended up in that way. It doesn't sound right. Uh, the whole I, the, this this whole approach was just so poorly flown that I don't think you can put either pilot in the correct frame of mind. Liz is asking, uh, wouldn't they have been better to stay down? Considering all the previous mistakes that uh, undoubtedly made, Liz, I don't think they were in a position to make any uh, reasonable judgment calls at that point. I don't think, um, you know, it, <laughs> they could have done anything. Quite honestly, I, I, and it wouldn't have surprised me at this point. I mean, yeah, I can, I can see where maybe there was a bounce landing. Um, spoilers, of course, would come up, and that would be an issue. But as soon as you bring up the, the uh, throttles to go, or flight lever, levers on the Airbus, correct? Um, if once you bring those up, the spoilers should retract. And then, if in fact they had bounced a little bit, and the FO, you know, they did side go around, he immediately or whoever was uh, pilot monitoring. Let me say that not necessarily FO uh, pilot monitoring pulled the landing gear up, and I could see where that would that would occur. So that is a possibility, certainly. Well, the good news for us is that they were able to recover the flight data recorder and the cockpit voice recorders, and I'm sure that a lot of the answers to these questions we're having right now will be answered eventually. Yep. Very much so. Yeah. Good. Yeah. But it's fun speculating, isn't it? Yeah. It is. In other words, it was a really kind of botched approach and landing. And sadly, well, a terrible bunch, situation. Yeah. A bunch yeah. of people died. So again, I'm sure we'll be talking about it for a while, uh, especially when we start getting some some good info regarding it. All right, let's uh, move on to this one. This is an interesting one uh, from the Aviation Herald. An iAero Boeing 737-800 registration November 820 Tango performing flight 3518 from Victorville, California to San Diego, California, departed Victorville's runway 17 and completed the seemingly uneventful flight with a safe landing on San Diego's runway 27 about 41 41 minutes after departure. Following landing, it was discovered parts had come off the vertical tail's leading edge as well as left side in flight. Uh, On March 23, 2020, the NTSB announced the occurrence occurred at Victorville. Okay, that was the origin. That's interesting. And was rated an accident and is being investigated by the NTSB, stating that the investigators will use data provided by various entities, including but not limited to the Federal Aviation Administration and or the operator, and will not travel in support of this investigation to prepare the this aircraft accident report. Kind of a 
unusual statement. They're not going to travel to... <laughs> so there must be some obvious evidence of what actually happened here, although they don't tell us what that yeah. might be. Uh, now, it would be really nice if we had somebody here on the uh, panel that knows something, maybe has flown or is currently flying the 737. If you look at the picture... Well, that's right. Ca- uh, Captain Jeff yeah. does. If you look at the picture, uh, and if you can't imagine, um, the 737 has a very long dorsal spine that extends forward from a normal tail position that you'd see on like on a 777 or an Airbus, about a third of the length of the fuselage forward towards the wings. And that's the portion of the, of the tail that came off, uh, except for the panels on the sides. This is kind of screaming corrosion to me. Uh but I can understand why they didn't know it wasn't there. That design has been there since the very first 7.3, and it's probably there for lateral stability, just mm-hmm. like the CRJs have the dorsal fins on the belly. This is a ventral fin, a single one. So when I saw this, the first thing I'm thinking, it's, I, the first thing I looked up is, is Victorville and MRO, but then I found that it was a passenger flight, so it's not coming out of heavy maintenance. In fact, the, the C-check was done like a year prior which is a ma- the major, major uh, maintenance overhauls. So I'm thinking corrosion over time. This came off. Having flown a 7.3 without the yaw damper on, it's not that hard to do. It's kind of a handful. You kind of feel like you're sailing a boat. You know, you're, you're yo-ho, yo-ho, the pirate slave for me kind of thing. Pirate <laughs> yeah. <for me. laughs> and, uh, but I'm sure the yaw damper was just working its butt off to keep that thing straight and level. And uh, they probably didn't notice it all in the cockpit. I imagine the FAs in the back, the flight attendants, probably heard some extra wind noise just by that big flat face of that, uh, mm-hmm. where the ventral fin had come off, and the just the buffeting around the hole in the side of the tail. But I don't think the pilots would have had much impact on how the airplane actually flew. The yaw damper would have corrected for 99% of it, probably. There's not a dorsal fin missing light? <laughs> no. no. No master question for that? No, most, no, no there's no ding-ding-dings. Just, no. ding, just dinglings in the cockpit. How long is that kit there, Jeff? Pardon? How long is that whole piece? It's got to be about oh, 15, 20 feet forward of that door at least. Oh, so someone could have a new flagpole outside their house. Oh, it's it's tall too. I mean, you can see mm-hmm. how big yeah. that flat plate there. It it, it it's Just goes Google down to nothing. Just Google Yeah, and you'll see how yeah, I mean, it's it's good piece of metal came off that airplane. And what's interesting though that the FAA said or the NTSB said, well, this. This occurrence happened at Victorville. So did it, is that implying that this happened even before they took off? Yeah, did they Probably find happened the while they were rolling down the runway. Could be. And I think this is a ferry flight, so I doubt they had any flight attendants on board. No, it was, it was passenger operation. Yeah. Was it really? Yeah. Yes. They, they, mm-hmm. they had actual passengers on board? Yes. Yes. Because huh. that because that was my first thought. Well, what what uh, what um, what uh, Colonel Jeff said. It's uh, you know the fact that it's an MRO. I've been to Victorville many times, and you know for for heavy maintenance stuff. And uh, it's like, oh, parts are flying off. That there's going to be an A P in trouble here. That was the, but, uh, uh, the like the immediate assumption I think that everybody made. And then we find that that was just a stopping point. In they had flown you know, a couple of places before they got to Victorville, or maybe just one. Uh, the the turnaround time at Victorville was what fifty one minutes. It yeah. was under an hour, and then they continued mm. to San Diego. Yeah, because I was thinking it was either coming out of maintenance or it had been sitting there in storage because of the shutdown. Mm-hmm. But neither yeah, one of those applies too. here. It was actually me passengers too. on board, full crew, and they wow. didn't know it till they landed in San Diego. 
So somebody's got a big chunk of metal in their yard. Okay, so the big long bit at the front, that's fair enough. How about the two smaller bits, Jeff? Uh, do they get blown out uh, air pressure, do you think, or what? Well, you can see the holes in the side of the in the in that flat plate. I'm thinking just probably air pressure coming through there. Probably just uh, again corrosion on those, and they the torquing just didn't hold the, those plates in the in the in place, and the screws just stripped out because those aren't expected to kind of get pressure from that yeah. side of the skin. It's the other side that is supposed yeah. to be you know, receive pressure. Mm. Yeah, that's very interesting. interesting. I'm trying to work out how it's actually attached to the fuselage because uh, most of that seems to be air. It is. And I, I actually, when I was <laughs> doing some research on this, uh, I saw a video of, of uh, a 7.3 having the tail put on. It was an LL jet. And it's actually hoisted up on a crane. And that whole piece is slides into like a a, a dovetail tongue and groove kind of contraption. It was hard to make it out on the video. So I'm not sure quite how it attaches, but uh, it's not it's attached to the spine of the airplane in some way it looked like a lot of connections Hmm. okay so i mean it's it's impressive and it looks like oh my gosh the thing is going to fall off but i don't think there was any any fear of that happening it's just that uh, probably created a lot more drag and a lot more fuel flow than they're used to now, yeah. had there been a a, a an asymmet- asymmetrical uh, thrust situation, that might have been a little different. Because really, the reason why that that piece was put there, and the reason why, as 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 Jeff said, at the seven three has had that since the beginning, is because they're in flight test and they figured out that the the uh, the tail need a little bit extra help to keep that directional control. Which is why you know this this airplane has that. CRJs have the ventral fin. The old seven twenties had that old ventral fin on on the uh, the uh, under the um, the tail cone. For for um, directional control, I can tell you unless you, unless yeah. you're at a really uh, like like max power heavy weight, you don't need the full rudder to control an engine mm-hmm. out on the airplane. Um, and from what the picture shows, I can't see any damage to the actual rudder itself, just the elevator. Uh, I can see a dent in the leading edge of the elevator, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, but uh, there, yeah. I don't. Uh, I can't see any visible damage to the rudder itself. So I don't think they. They might have noticed a little extra rudder, but I don't know if it's something they'd have really paid attention to at the time if that had happened. Yeah, and, and Jeff was talking about the uh, the um, the yacht dampener, and uh, yacht dampener is a system that we have uh, because these these um, these airplanes with swept back wings have a tendency to kind of you know roll and yaw because it's just just the way the wings are set up and the aerodynamics around it, and to to kind of dampen that 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 movement there, the 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 the, the rudder counteracts it and kind of nulls it out and it, uh, different airplanes work different ways uh, some airplanes use the uh, the the, uh, the inertial system to sense that roll and dampen it out other airplanes use uh, other systems that's basically all yaw damper does is it just basically yamp is the daw, the 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 yaw produced by the uh, swept back wing uh, configuration so like a shimmy damper yeah like shimmy yeah, damper sorry. can you tell us a little bit about that uh, <laughs> no, stuff? I can't. Okay. um yeah, I'm looking at this picture of the uh, leading edge of the left side uh, uh, stabilizer uh, horizontal stab, and I'm thinking, well, I, I guess I see a dent there, but it looks pretty normal to me uh, on the airplane that I fly. And when I do my walk around, <laughs> I see plenty of those, some extra dents, those dents the... on our leading edge. It doesn't look, you do walk that around? doesn't look normal to me. <laughs> yes, I do walk I, around. Yeah, it, looks a, it looks a little... I did see the cold truck pull up to the airplane this morning in Pittsburgh. Yes, we had plenty of coal for the flight. We'll, we'll learn more about that in a minute. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's interesting anyway. Hopefully, we'll 
this might be one of those where we never hear anything else about yeah. this, you know? So I, I hope we do, but, um, interesting, uh, definitely looks kind of odd, doesn't it? Well, if his class is an accident, there will be a report eventually. Oh, good point. Right. Yeah, you're right. Okay, good. You're back from this. Absolutely. So hopefully we'll, uh, we'll, we'll revisit this when we, I just want to uh, know where that piece, I mean, you know, that's a bunch of open land and desert stuff on that flight path. So yeah. someone's going to make themselves a really nice desk. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what I do. Go out and go searching for it. <laughs> Let's go. Yeah, but it sounds like it'll be all corroded. Blah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that'll buff out. Yeah. That'll that'll right. I'll buff out. <laughs> Good one. All right. Finally, in the news uh, notebook, uh, we have this uh, again from the Aviation Herald, uh, Simon's uh, awesome site. Uh, Delta Airlines Boeing 777-200 registration 702DN performing flight 3343 from Frankfurt, Maine, Germany to Chicago O'Hare, Illinois, USA was en route at flight level 400, about 60 nautical miles north, northeast of Moncton, New Brunswick. I had to think of what NB stands for. <laughs> Usually they don't say new as long as I did. New Brunswick. Uh, when the first officer became incapacitated, the captain called the relief first officer to the flight deck and diverted the aircraft to Moncton for a safe landing about 15 minutes later. 15 minutes later. They were at 40,000 feet. Wow. The first That's officer crazy. was taken to a hospital. The Canadian TSB reported the captain summoned the relief first officer to the flight deck, and together they provided first aid to the first officer, including, again, starting at 40,000 feet, 15 minutes there on the ground. While all this is happening, they used an automated external defibrillator, defibrillator, there we go, to stabilize the first officer. After diversion to and landing in Moncton, the first officer was transported for medical treatment. The condition of the first officer is currently unknown. Although I think somebody in the comments uh, here said something about the fact that he is doing okay, but I'm not yeah, sure. Well, about that's that. great. Yeah. Good. Anytime you have to use an AED on someone, that's not a good good sign. If you're actually actively using it, that means you have an abnormal heart rhythm uh, that needs to be shocked back to normal. Of course, I could be wrong. Maybe that was another incident I was reading by the. Person's yeah. fine. Well, we'll know. just, we'll be hopeful about it. Yeah. Until we know for certain. So that seems like they had their hands full. This is one of those flights I think that Delta was doing, not a passenger service, but the, uh, the PPE transport. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so it was just, I believe, I don't know if they had flight attendants in the back, you know, the with extinguishers. Crew? I think it was just the, the cockpit crew cockpit. on board. That's the reason why they get on the ground so fast. They didn't have to worry about in the back, anybody in the back. Complaint. No complaints. Yeah. No True. complaints. But still. Um, Wouldn't you normally have someone doing fire um, checks in the back? So I would, I would assume that that would be the case, but perhaps maybe all they were doing was carrying it under. I don't know. I don't know the details of this. It doesn't say in this article from the Aviation Herald, but I guess if you didn't have any cargo in the passenger cabin itself, you wouldn't require uh, flight attendants with um, with extinguishers and such. So I, I'm just guessing. I don't know. Interesting. Yeah, 40,000 feet in 15 minutes. Damn. Pretty impressive. Sounds I mean, like it, it uh, brings to mind the fact that uh, when we are trying to uh, put a defibrillator on a passenger and shock them, um, we're not allowed to do it, uh, actually apply the shock, uh, when the seatbelt signs are on uh, or, you know, if you're in turbulence or if you're on the final part of the approach, etc. So, um, and the reason for this is, of course, if the patient moves 
just you as can shock you're someone else. shock them, you can shock somebody else. Now, yeah. Steph probably knows all about that. She probably has been shocked all the time. Um, but um, <laughs> um, it just occurs to me that you've got one bloke flying it, one bloke is incapacitated, and one bloke going to apply the shock. If if it moved and touched the seat or uh, the other, you could have ended up with two people incapacitated. Um, I, I don't know. Perhaps they weren't applying shocks. Perhaps they, were they, just they may not have been. They may have just had it on for. Uh, you know, you can have it on, and you can have it on and have it have it working. And if it's analyzing the rhythm and it doesn't advise a shock, you're not going to shock. You still have the yeah, AED on. That's what, that's I'm, that's what I'm hoping. They, they and they could have just, just been doing. On you know, whatever first aid or CPR was actually required in the moment. It doesn't actually say what the, the issue was. Anytime you're using that, you assume there's some sort of cardiac concern, uh, especially if they're incapacitated, if they're not breathing normally, or if they're, you can't find a normal pulse. Um, but yeah, we really don't know the actual details there. No, no. It's just an interesting thought. Yeah. 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 And it's, 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 it's funny. Cause I didn't know that the, um, so every, I don't know, every three months we get these, uh, these, um, um, these modules that we have to go through. One of them is, um, uh, talks about the, the use of the, um, of this, uh, defibrillator machine here. And I didn't know that the, 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 you know, I mean, you'll, you'll put it on and it shows you how to do it and all that, but I didn't know that the thing actually monitors mm-hmm. and, and analyzes whether it should shock you or not. Mm-hmm. Like I, thought, I thought you put it on there, you press the button and it you know, shocks you regardless. Nope, so. and in between you're doing rounds of CPR, so it's meant to do right. with two-minute two, two minute cycles of CPR. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And That's it'll tell you when it's ready to, to analyze and it wants you to step back. And it, it really is made for the bystander who is there to do CPR. They try and make it as simple as possible. So Which really means it's pilot-proof. So. Yeah, we tried. they tried to make it pilot-proof, definitely. Yeah. But that's to say, um, you know, this is my plug here, if... Um, you're not already trained in CPR. They do make, they do, um, at least here in the United States, have community CPR classes where they'll teach you just um, compression only CPR and the use of an AED. And that can really be life saving. So if you don't have that training, would highly encourage you to seek it out. The American Red Cross and uh, other similar organizations offer it. Excellent. A nice plug there for that sort of thing. Thank you, Steph. Mm-hmm. Dr. Steph. Sure. Um, <laughs> The, I, I did read the comment in the comments for this particular um, incident on the Aviation Herald, except that <laughs> the, the title of the comment is, I hope, and then the body of the comment is, first officer is in good shape by now. So I guess what this person is saying, I hope that the first officer is in good shape by now. <laughs> so so they, we, they don't know. We don't know. <laughs> oh, well. Yeah. Very good. And okay. thankfully, anyone calculated was- their rate of descent? 15 minutes from 40,000 feet. I have 2,600 feet a minute. That's not, not bad. Not, not too bad. bad. Yeah, yeah, actually, no. that's my I mean, normal. To add, you have to add, I mean, if, if you're going straight in, then you have to add a deceleration segment and, you know, all that. But, but still, I'm, I'm going to say 3,000 feet a minute all the way. Yeah. Cool. Which is not bad. All right. Well, that's, that's enough. That's not a wild descent. <laughs> no, it's not. No, hardly. No. I think we just makes the point that, um, all pilots are trained to do single pilot operations when necessary. So with incapacitated uh, first officer and the other first officer attending to him, it's quite um, the captain's quite capable of landing the airplane on his own, as the first officer would have been had mm-hmm. uh, the captain been incapacitated. So these things are practiced regularly at the simulator. So you mustn't think that he was uh, doing something particularly unusual. And it makes the good point that it is possible for a pilot to become incapacitated. So if you have single pilot operations or you're pushing for that, it's something that you really have to 
consider and take into account how you'd mitigate that unlikely but possible scenario. I'm just <laughs> saying, and we'll move on. You're going to ruin our plan, stuff for one pilot or no pilot airplanes. Don't point that Am out. I? Talking to you, Ryanair. Good. Glad, <laughs> to, glad to ruin it. Glad to ruin it. Yeah, me too. All right. Now, guess what? It is time to get to know us. <laughs> And uh, if you're watching the video, it's a wonderful compilation picture of the crew. <laughs> Thank you, Completely Nick, for accurate. That. I mean, that's all you have to look at to get to know us, I think. <laughs> exactly. Just, I mean, what else really is there to say? I don't think there's anything to say. Just Let's just move, move on. on to feedback then, shall we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, so let me start. Um, first of all, well, no, I... Uh, yeah, I'm going to say yes, this. Yes, why don't you start today? I'm going to start today. And what I want to say first is that last Sunday, Steph, because she's probably not going to mention it, she celebrated her birthday. I did. Oh, happy birthday, Steph. Birthday. 21 today. 21 today. 21. 21, yeah, sure. yes. I'll take that. Or maybe 22, <laughs> I don't know. got the key of the door, never been 21 before. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's very kind of you. All of you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Musical interview brought to you by Nick. How was the birthday? Yeah, the birthday was really good. Um, uh, I'm trying to think where to start for all this. So um, I actually had an invitation from the local uh, drop zone, the skydiving drop zone here to gain some experience and ride along in the uh, right seat on the Kodiak all weekend. So I did that all day on Saturday. And then Sunday, um, it ended up that my um, my brother has actually come to town as well. So I was planning just to do that for half the day. And um, so we did, I think, seven loads in the morning of skydivers. Um, and then around one o'clock, I called it quits. And we went out to brunch, which was really nice. And that's about the time they had to quit uh, dropping skydivers, too, because the storms showed up, which has been happening pretty much every day here and is happening again. It's pouring rain right outside my window. Um, no thunder and lightning this time around, but that was happening earlier as well. Uh, but we had a very nice brunch. Um, we, we did go to a restaurant nearby uh, in town. Uh, we did outside seating. Everything was nice and spaced out. So we weren't too close to anyone. And we kind of just watched these thunderstorms build up all around while we were having brunch. And it was actually really, really pretty, re really gorgeous day. Um, lots of good thunder and lightning in the distance and kind of wrapped things up right as it started to encroach on us. And it would have been time to call it quits anyway. Um, so that was that was the majority of the day on Sunday. And then I had a few things to do around the house and, and a little trip that I had to take on Sunday evening. So really just a small trip. Yeah. Little trip. Had to go had to go to Philadelphia. Oh, why? Um some family you had to go and meet? Because she's sneaky. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I would call them family. <laughs> I'm not really sure exactly how to cover all this, but uh, um, I'll just so yeah. Go, go ahead. ahead. Tell us from no. Tell us from your perspective because I think it's more fun. Well, from my perspective, no, um, on you know, if you look at the APG calendar, you can see my schedule there, and I, I make that available for the public. Sometimes that's a mistake, um, <laughs> and it, it, it appeared available. that uh, my last trip. Uh, on the uh, Mad Dog was going to be this trip that's, that departed on Monday and uh, was supposed to go uh, up to Philly, Philadelphia and back and then over to Grand Rapids and then two nights in Grand Rapids and then back to Atlanta. But we know that, and I've been t telling everybody about this for weeks, that uh, we are not serving Grand Rapids from Atlanta anymore. So I knew I wasn't going to do that part of it. 
And I knew that I would most likely just go up to Philadelphia and back. And that was probably going to be it for me on the Mad Dog, the MD-88. And so, I don't know, a few days before, I think, um, uh, Mike Carroll's, our uh, dispatcher Mike, uh, host of the Flying and Life podcast, uh, contacted me. I think he texted me or something like that. And he said, hey, Jeff, do you mind if I uh, ride your jump seat uh, to Philly and back uh, on Monday? And I said, no, I don't mind at all. That'd be fun. And then I was kind of secretly thinking to myself, the last time that Mike rode my jump seat, it was not a good experience at all um, because, (laughs) uh, yeah, because uh, my first officer was Dana. And that wasn't why, though. Um, that was part of it. Uh, that would be the whole that reason. Was part of the re- that was part of the no, reason. I have no questions. What I'd like to do now is play something uh, that we recorded at Mellow Mushroom. So this would be a good time for that, I think. Okay, I'm here at the Mellow Mushroom. Mellow Mushroom. Mellow Mushroom. Thank you. That's, uh, that's, that's Chattanooga, Tim. Hello, Jeff. How are you doing today? I've decided to, uh, decided to uh, take a drive down to Atlanta and fly to Philadelphia with you today. And i got to admit that Jeff did grease the landing on the way back. I wouldn't necessarily say grease, but thank you very much. Uh, it wasn't as bad as the last time that this certain person was on my jump seat in Columbus, Ohio, and somebody, certain first officer, was sitting in the right seat. And Let me just say that there was a lot less activity in the cockpit on this particular landing than the one in Columbus, Ohio. A lot fewer distractions, so that's one thing that helped. Anyway, we're here at Mellow Mushroom on Virginia Avenue, not too far at all from the Atlanta International Airport in College Park. And uh, so, as Tim just mentioned, uh, he drove down from Chattanooga, flew from Atlanta to Philly and back, and that was my last, at the time at least, scheduled activity on the mad dog and uh so i'm let me tell you what happened here uh, mike about a week ago or so he says hey, I'm, I'm thinking about jump seating on your flight up to philly and back and i went oh that's cool and then like yesterday sunday morning, sunday morning i get this email from tim and he goes yeah hey look what i have here and he sends me this screenshot of his boarding pass going from Atlanta to Philly and back, and I'm thinking, oh, that's cool. So I'm thinking, that's that's cool. It's kind of interesting to have some people kind of share that moment with me on the last Mad Dog. And I really honestly didn't think anything else was going to happen, but I was wrong. I'm wrong a lot, actually. Um, lo- less than 50% most of the time in my life. So uh, ended up seeing Stephen Ivey, at the airport, and he was going to go with us from Atlanta to Philly, and then he was going to go to Chicago out of the, out of there, to because he had uh, a, a, a trip or something going on in Chicago. Unfortunately, he did not make the flight because we have restricted a number of people that can travel on the uh, on the airplanes. And the good news is that these airplanes are getting more and more packed lately. So that's that's a good sign. So anyway, the bad thing is that Stephen couldn't go with us. So headed up to Philly. And when I got to Philly, I didn't even notice this, but they tell me after the fact that there were several people in the window at the arrival gate, like jumping up and down and waving and everything else. And I did not see any of it because I was not really looking for that because I didn't think that that was going to happen. And the only thing that was kind of odd 
is that the Jetway driver, when he was driving the Jetway up in Philadelphia, he had his phone, and he was, like, recording it and, like, pulling it up to the... And I go, what is he doing? I've never seen a, a, a Jetway operator, a gate agent, with his phone, like... And I think, well, maybe he's, like, a real a real uh, mad dog freak or something like uh, well yeah i don't know maybe he's maybe he was bitten in the past for like slamming the jetway into the uh, airplane he wants to make sure he has photographic evidence or video evidence i don't know so i didn't think much of that and then uh, finally all the passengers got off we went up to the gatehouse and there were a whole bunch of people that i know <laughs> including two who were in these crazy outfits. They were dinosaur outfits. <laughs> That's so funny. Uh, really. Dinosaur outfits. One was Dr. Steph, and one was Rob Hamish Fairbairn Robert Dick, I like to call him. And uh, then I saw, let's say it was uh, Hillel was there, and, uh, and, and this young lady sitting next to me, Tanya was there and Jeff Falmouth was there and surprisingly Fred wasn't there Fred's always there I don't know what Fred's wife wouldn't let him come oh I don't blame her and Fred couldn't make the flight work to go back to California ah uh, that's okay Fred, Fred was Fred was here in spirit but I am disappointed Fred I'm really disappointed um and let's see, who, who have I missed here? We had, um, so Jeff and Hillel and Rob and Steph and Tanya and Mike, of course, and Tim. They came up with me. Up. So, okay. So, and then they said, and they had this cake, this beautiful cake that uh, I think Jeff's daughter made, which is, oh, it was wonderful, beautiful cake. And uh, that was awesome. And then uh, everybody in the gatehouse is going like, "What the? What's going on here? This is weird." And then the, our, our flight attendants uh, ended up getting some cake too because we had to get off the airplane now because they do the the whole fogging cleaning routine, and so they got to partake in some of the festivities. And then Jeff goes, "Oh, it's not over yet. We're going back with you to Atlanta." I went, "What?" So Jeff had planned to go back with us. Unfortunately, he didn't make it because we just ran out of seats. Uh, because of our, we're blocking out a certain number of seats, so we our capacity on the airplane has decreased. So sorry, Jeff. I wish you could have gone with me, but I'm wearing Jeff's shirt. He gave he gave me the shirt off his back. That's a friend, because I I have to wear this shirt because I'm disguised at the Mellow Mushroom on Virginia Avenue. It's bringing it all back around. So you're wondering to yourself, where is Jeff going with all this? Jeff says, no idea. Um, let's see. So who rode back with me? Tanya, who's sitting right here, and she's going to talk to you in a minute. Uh, obviously, Mike and Tim, because they got to get back home because their car's here in Atlanta. Just makes sense. Uh, Steph was able to come back with us as well. Unfortunately, she had to get. She has to work tomorrow. She has a job. So she has to get back, and she had to fly back uh, at 6 o'clock, I think. So uh, she's probably probably home now, or at least back at, in Charlotte. So uh, anyway, so we most of us were able to come back over here to uh, the Mellow Mushroom, and now finally, I know you're going. Like, would you shut up, Jeff? Shut up, Jeff. Yeah, Jeff. Shut, shut, up. Up. shut up. Shut up, Jeff. Oh, well, you're going to talk in a minute. When we got, to, I'm sorry. Thank you. So when we got back to Atlanta, Dana is giving me all these 
nonverbal cues. And uh, I, I thought maybe at first he was having a stroke, but then now I realize. He said, wow. Yeah, he's saying, like, well, who am I? Minced meat? Or is that the thing you say? Chopped liver. Chopped liver, that's it. <laughs> Minced meat. <laughs> wow. Chopped liver. Anyway, so when we came back to Atlanta, and we got to the gate, and then we went out to the gatehouse, and then joining the party is Julie and... Your husband, um, I can't remember his name. Oh, that's right. Dana. Um, Julie's better half was there. or Yeah, we're there. Oh, did I? Uh, what did I say? You said Julie's better half. Oh, I'm sorry. Dana's better half, Julie. Yeah, that's what I really meant. Thank you. So they were there, and they joined the festivities, and now we're here. And now I'm going to finally shut up, and I'm going. So I'm thinking of that sound effect in my. Shut up, Jeff. All right, here we go. Here is Tanya. I'm sorry, we ran out of time. <laughs> Hi, APGers. It's just so wonderful to have been able to do this, uh, to fly on Jeff's possibly final Mad Dog flight. I love the aircraft. It just, the takeoff, like when it lifts off the ground and you feel like that support under you and no other aircraft does that. And then how smooth it is in the air. And it might be a little noisy in the back, but you know what? It's worth it. But it was it was just so great. So great to see everyone that, that we were able to. I mean, obviously I've been in lockdown for two and a half months and this is a little nutty. I mean, this was all the insane people that came out, <laughs> to be honest. But it was just delightful. And to finally be able to have Captain Jeff as my pilot was... And, oh, yes. And this was the first time I ever flew first, first class, too. How are all those drinks? Yeah, well, <laughs> let's not talk about that. <laughs> Here's your bottle of water. And yeah, yeah. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, <laughs> no, that, that, that's... If you heard what Jeff said, he said, here's your bottle of water and cheese it's shut up, slave. But that's that's a joke. That's an in-joke for another podcast that we listen to, which is the No Agenda podcast. But anyway, it was it was a wonderful experience. I'm so glad to be here now with, with Dan and to meet Julie for the first time and Mike and to, and to meet Tim for the first time and to be here with, with Jeff. And we really wish that all of you could be here with us right now. Yes. So Jeff told you the story. This is Dispatcher Mike, by the way. So Jeff told you the story of how this happened for him. Well, this has been a thought that has gone between Dr. Steph and I for about three or four weeks about what our Memorial Day plans were and uh, what we were going to do. And even I was talking with Dana about it for about three or four weeks, uh, setting this whole thing up. And, you know, it's it was truly... So today was also my last flight on a Mad Dog, and I've been working and dispatching and dealing with the DC-9s my entire aviation career um, once I got to a major airline. Between the DC-9-30s, the 40s, the 50s, and now the 88s and 90s, um, obviously the 717s are still around, but those are just, you know, they're not the same. They're, they're, they're new. Um, but really, so I, I did a last flight in the cabin, and I had the absolute great pleasure of doing the last flight in the in the flight deck with Captain Jeff at the helm, 
and just watching the way that he handles the aircraft in the command he has of the aircraft in how smooth he is with the airplane you know really really the the 18 days and 2 hours of experience that he has on the aircraft <laughs> oh that's 18 years 12,400 hours pretty much on the aircraft <laughs> um you know it, it was really truly fun um we had a, it was great surprising him i had nuggets of surprises pretty much throughout the day um, I think the biggest one was when we were taxiing out and I was in the jump seat and Philadelphia ground goes, is Captain Jeff on board? And Jeff, <laughs> Jeff looks around like, y- yeah. And um, he goes, he, he goes, he goes, <laughs> I write down a phone number. Yeah. Um, but he goes, well, you have some friends on social media and apparently we know that this is your last flight as an uh, MD-88 captain and after 18 years and 12,000 plus hours, We'd like to congratulate you on that, and good luck in your n- near uh, next in aircraft in future. And I swear to God, Jeff's jaw hit the yoke. It was just, it was just crazy. He goes, "I wonder who did that." I'm like, "Well, you're welcome." And, and I kind of explained to him how how I was able to get that out. But it was uh, it was a lot of fun. It was an enjoyment, and setting this up and having a having a meetup again is is really nice and really really good. So I'm gonna I'm gonna pass on over to. Uh, Dana, who unfortunately, I would just like to say, we didn't get to celebrate your last 88 flight in the same way, and man, that's a kick in the nuts, and I'm sorry. No one knows. I'm grabbing the mic. We didn't know when Dana's, Dana didn't know when his last flight was going to be, and sadly, it looks like he already had it. Um, And I just wanted to quickly comment before Dana talks about... Mike's uh, surprise nuggets, and I just have to say that Mike's nuggets are just awesome. So, hang on, let me give it to Dana. You know, the uh, it's an absolute pleasure being a part of this entire community. Number one, and it it wouldn't be this community without all the people that are involved with it. So it's amazing to see the support for Captain Jeff. And uh, for all of us on the show, for that matter. Um, I left the lake today only for this one reason, to come up here. Uh, Julie and I decided on Memorial Day here. And, it would, pizza. and pizza and beer and, and didn't want to have anything to do with Jeff. But, <laughs> no, we, we wanted to come up here and surprise him as well and, and be here for him. Um, and this is a very special um, moment in, in his career. Um, so we decided to leave the lake after uh, being up there for the weekend, and it was a beautiful weekend, and I was really looking forward to uh, coming over here. Uh, the other thing is, is you know, I appreciate the accolades. It's, it's been a, an unbelievable ride for me as well. Uh, I, I had the unique opportunity to fly several trips with Jeff over his career, and a lot of, as you've heard me say this before, a lot of what I've learned and how to be the captain that I am comes from guys like Jeff as he's sticking his finger in his mouth. And, I, you know, I was sitting here, I was thinking, okay, uh, Jeff has uh, 12,400 hours, roughly. I'm almost exactly half. I'm at 6,700 hours. So uh, it's, yeah, if I do the math on that, yeah, a little bit more than half of the total time. So I've, uh, I've, I've got quite a few hours, uh, but not nearly as many quality hours as Jeff does, but th- then again, Jeff is a lot older than me. Get out of my way. <laughs> Retire. Leave. 
Why do you think I came to see you? Goodbye. No, I'm really only kidding. I'm really only kidding. I, I don't know. I, I <laughs> Don't trip on the curb as you go out. Uh, it's a little slip out there. It's like slippery out there. It's raining. <laughs> so anyways, uh, I don't have much more to say other than the fact that uh, my I know Julie's not going to say much. I'm, I'm glad that uh, she joined me. She was actually very adamant. I was thinking about hop, trying to hop on the flight, but because of what we're talking about, the flights were just too close uh, that I decided it just wasn't worth us. Yeah, I'd be stuck in Philly, and especially my wife, and you know she has to work tomorrow too. So, it wasn't it wasn't worth the risk. So we took the the, the second best option, and we came here to visit with with everybody. On that note, it's a three hour show, and uh, I think we've elapsed our three hours at this point. So I'm gonna send it send it back to you, Jeff, in the studio. No, I'm looking. He's sitting right here. Here you go. Yes, and I have to say, Dana gave me a wonderful gift. It's a uh, patch. Uh, that has uh, the Mad Dog picture on it, and it says 10,000 hours. And so not a lot of us get a chance to wear that patch. And so thank you very much, Dana. Very, very special. Appreciate that. Um, and I have to say, you know, the, I've, I've only, this is the third airplane that I've flown Dana, this is, I think this is much more significant for Dana because this is the only airplane that you've flown. So this is the first airplane that you've had to say goodbye to. And, well, no? Yeah, others? Okay, your former airline, yeah. Um, and as, as people know with me, I'm kind of the grim reaper of uh, airplanes. Um, if, if I end up flying an airplane, that means that the airplane's going to be retired. <laughs> I think every airplane that I've flown, except for the T-38. Yeah. So, you know, honestly, um, I was really not happy about the fact that I got displaced off the 727 and had to go to the MD-88 because I had heard so many terrible, awful things about the airplane. And, you know, honestly, right away, I kind of felt the same way because it just didn't feel like the airplane that I was used to flying, like the, the 727. And, and then after t- after time went by, I realized that I kind of understood some of the idiosyncrasies of the airplane, and then I started appreciating some of the fly-by-wire, fly-by-cable characteristics of actually feeling the airplane. It was It's almost like a living thing. I mean, more so than any other airplane we fly in the airline industry. This is actually, you feel everything that's happening with the controls when you're hand-flying the airplane. It's a, it's a wonderful airplane. It really is. I, I've come to find that you know, people say, I think I've heard people say, you know, I love the uh, the uh, MD-88 because Jeff loves the MD-88. And I'm thinking, you know, I always didn't love the Mad Dog. I really didn't. And, you know, you always have because that's all you've really known, really, for the big airliners. Yeah. Yeah, Dana was an instructor on it. So he's a lot of his career has been involved with this particular airplane. And I have to say that I finally started appreciating the airplane for what it is, and I'm really going to miss it. It's a it's a really nice airplane, and um, for an airplane that I was never supposed to fly, and having flown on it longer than anything else I've flown, as they've mentioned several times, 18 years, 12,000, almost 12,400 hours, um, more than any other airplane I've flown in my life. I think I have over like 20,400 hours total time civilian, and then a couple thousand hours of Air Force time. Uh, but uh, yeah, I've, I've come to really love. So, 
interesting word to use for the Mad Dog. But I really love this airplane, and I'm going to miss it. So, anyway, thank you, everyone, for coming out and making this such a special day for me. I honestly did not expect any of this. I really didn't think it was a big deal. You know, it's just like another airplane. I'll move on to another one. Uh, but everybody made me realize how special it really is. So thank you. Cheers to everyone. All right, thanks everybody for uh, joining us today on episode 427. We've used up all the time with my audio from the Mellow Mushroom. Hey, I just want to uh, jump on the uh, the end of that there because those were some really wonderful sentiments. And um, oh man, Dana's on the phone. Dana, Dana, get off the my phone. Moment here. <laughs> She's saying something nice. <laughs> I need Dana to listen to this. I, of course, I got a phone call just at the wrong time. So hold on one second. Okay. So hold that thought. Okay. Pause the show. Pause. Yeah. Okay. Pause. Studio. Pause the show. Yeah. If you if you have something that you would like to uh, raise Hello. a glass to. Delay the shower. <laughs> hold off on the shower. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. Right, no, that's okay. That's my okay. I'm just going like that. Didn't ha- yeah that, yeah good oh, termites we don't want termites so that's super important um so just jumping on the uh, end of those sentiments there because some really lovely things were were said there for uh the aircraft that's being retired and the two wonderful pilots that we know who have flown that aircraft for such a long time so I just want to uh, do a small toast to you guys both uh, Jeff and Dana and to the lovely aircraft the MD88 so. There you go. Cheers. 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 I have nothing to drink. Well, actually, I don't have anything left in my sparkling water, but Jeff is getting another round in the uh, studio refrigerator. a reasonably big deal for you guys because yeah, that's, a, was, that's a long it, time it to be on. on it's, a, it's a lifetime of an airplane, you know. Yeah. So it's it's a huge deal. And, and as um, a, also, we we said that you know, like Dana, I, I I was telling Jeff when we were listening to this recording, I really feel bad for Dana because he really didn't know when. I mean, he he yeah. did fly his last flight if, on the if on we the had Mando, known, he we would have made a big deal of that flight for you as well, Dana. We just I know. I'm, I'm just I, no I, I honestly I am the luckiest unlucky pilot. If that can make sense. <laughs> or the unluckiest lucky pilot. Your unluckiest lucky pilot. That's correct. <laughs> oh, well, I'm, I'm not going to get into what, what I really mean by that. But yes, it, it was uh, it was special for me to be there. Uh, you know, I've spent a lot of time with Jeff. And by the way, the, the patch symbolizes that you're greater than 10,000 hours. Um, oh, okay. And, you just uh, hit that it, milestone. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't have it made specifically for you, but it is uh, something that I've had for a long time. Uh, hoping that I would get to that point. I'm obviously never going to get there. So I couldn't think of a better person to have it. Oh, thank you very much, Dana. That really means a lot to me. So cheers to yeah, Dana. It's, it, it, it's sad. It, it, and I believe me this week, I've been, I've been putting in uh, slips to fly all week and I have uh, not got a thing. So mm-hmm. unless the uh, opportunity arises to bring one of them to the boneyard, which I don't think will happen for me. Yes. My last trip occurred on, uh, I think it was April 26th or 27th. And the last flight I flew was Raleigh Durham to Atlanta on ship 971. So, 
And many people said that that captain flying that jet that day was one of the best in yeah. that dog history. At least, at least my landing. I didn't know it was going to be my last landing, but at least I know that now that that was my last landing, and it was. It was, it was, I'm not bragging on myself, but it was actually a really good one. So yeah, sometimes it's uh, better to not know. When it's your yeah, you didn't put all that pressure on yourself. I didn't put all that pressure on myself, but, uh, um, yeah, that's all. I mean, it was just, it was just a great pleasure to be there with you, Jeff, and, and to, uh, to celebrate with you. So that's all. Well, thank you. Say. I'm glad that you were able to be there as well, Dana. Thank you. And thanks for that. Julie too. Julie. Yeah. God love her. It was, it was, she, she wanted to be there as well. So she really pushed to go we so all love like, julie too great oh yeah and I'm we had a great time at the mellow mushroom i um, did and we people did. were saying um yeah did you like how many beers was jeff drinking i think at that point i only had two and i only think i only two. had two total we all only had two yeah so i was just i was just um high on excitement in life being with my friends anyway um Mike, who you heard laughing several times in that. I love Mike's laugh. It's just every time I hear him laugh, I want to laugh. And uh, he uh, prepared his own feedback for us. And uh, a little bit of it is going to duplicate what we've already heard. But Mike did send in this, including um, the uh, little interaction with air traffic control. So here we go. Take it away, Mike Carroll's. Hello, Captain Jeff and the rest of the amazing APG crew, and more importantly, the great APG community. It's Dispatcher Mike. I just had a couple more thoughts to add on about the uh, the surprise we gave Captain Jeff last Monday, and really just my time with the MD-8890 uh, as an aircraft type and everything like that. So I've been with Acme for 14 years now, and in the dispatch world, in the, in, in the airline industry, for going on my 15th year. And I've always operated and dispatched um, T-tail airplanes, basically from the uh, CRJ all the way through the DC-9-30, uh, 40, 50. And then when we merged with Acme, the... Um, MD-88, MD-90 got added to that list of DC-9 variants that we we operated. I understand that we're still going to have the 717 around for a while, but to me the 717 is different. The 717 is new. It's a newer airframe. It's a new airplane. It's a lot more modern avionics. Uh, the jump seat on the 717, in my opinion, sucks. It's not as good as the 88s and the 90s and the 9s were. Those are... Everyone always complained about those jump seats, but to me, I, I always enjoyed the the Mad Dog jump seat the most. Um, I'm going to miss the versatility of the airplane. I'm going to miss um, just really just the great utility short haul aircraft that it was, and all that. Jeff, uh, I again want to thank you for allowing me to ride your jump seat on on that flight back down from Philly. Um, I was very happy that we got to uh, surprise you. Um, and even you didn't know really anything was going on. You just thought I was going going to go on a jump seat ride with you. But I think you'd have to figure out by now we have to do something. I mean, geez. Um, 
So I'd like to thank my cohort, uh, Dr. Steph and Captain Jeff Felmuth, for uh, kind of really starting the thought process of what, what we were going to do and what our really Memorial Day plans were going to be about. But it was surprising you, Jeff, was probably one of the best uh, best gifts uh, that I could have given you. And it was a great joy for me to do it because it was a lot of fun for even just to sit there. Over the years of flying with you, watching you fly or you flying my airplane uh, with me, you've always taught me the the ability and the power to be in command and to know the right decisions to make and to make a decision and stick with it. And all of that while flying the aircraft incredibly smooth and always monitoring and looking at everything. Uh, the last jump seat, <laughs> this last flight on Monday, it it just made me smile so much to see you trim out the airplane and then kind of sit back and cross your arms. And even though we might have been in a bank or all that, you had the aircraft perfectly trimmed out and perfectly stable that you felt comfortable enough that you, you wanted to take your hands off the yoke to make sure that you had everything trimmed out the right way, the way it needed to be. And the, on the downwind, when we uh, avoided the weather on the downwind into Atlanta, you you switched everything off and you flew the airplane like a boss. Like you, I hope you, I hope, uh, it was just amazing. I, I hope your first officer was, uh, he was thinking the same thing because you really took that and took the situation that you were given and really gave a great outcome for the passengers. So I told Liz I'd keep this under five minutes and sorry, Liz, I lied. So my biggest absolute, best surprise that I got uh, for you on Monday, Jeff, was uh, getting ATC involved. And so uh, this is a little clip for those who could not hear it live because uh, you weren't in the flight deck or you didn't know exactly what frequency uh, the flight was on. So uh, my hat's off to uh, Philadelphia and their controllers. And so let's go ahead and play this. Ground, uh, 1895, uh, we got the weather and uh, we're at Spot 8, Red Eighteen ninety-five, ground, runway nine or left, taxi via November Kilo. November Kilo to nine left, eighteen ninety-five. Guys, got Captain Jeff on board. Uh, he is. All right, well, Captain Jeff, you got some friends on social media that like you a lot, and I uh, just want to wish you congratulations on twelve years with the Mad Dog, and good luck with whatever you got next. Wow, thank you very much. Appreciate that. Eighteen ninety-five. Hope it's a good one back. If you can monitor tower one one eight point five. 18.5. Y'all have a good day. Good day. 18.95. Philly Tower, are you ready to go? We're ready. 18.95. 18.95, the wind 100 at Niner. On departure, fly heading 080. Runway Niner, left clear for takeoff. On departure, fly heading as 080. 18.95. 18.95, contact departure. Congratulations again, Jeff. Go ahead. We'll go to departure. 18.95. Y'all have a good day. Thanks, guys. Departure. 1895, <laughs> 1895, proceed direct to Westminster. Direct Westminster, 1895, thank you. 1895, contact New York Center, 
13347, and enjoy your flight, Captain Jeff. 3347. We'll see you at uh, 1895. Well, there you have it. I'd like to thank uh, Daniel and Adrian from uh, Philadelphia Tower and Tracon for those shout outs. And I tell you, folks, Jeff's mouth and jaw almost hit the yoke when he first uh, listened to that. It was such a such a thrill doing it again. Thank you, Jeff, for everything you do, the community, and uh, for being a friend. So from down in uh, Sharpsburg, coming off my Mad Dog High, it's Dispatcher Mike. Thank you so much, Mike. Um, and, and thank you for everybody that had a hand in planning this whole thing. Like this guy sat, sitting, standing next to you. I'll have to fix that in a minute. Standing next to me, uh, Steph, um, a big part of the planning and all that kind of stuff. And of course, Mike as well. And, and anybody that had anything to do with it. Thank you so much. It really meant a lot to me. Uh, you, this, this podcast and this community is just overwhelming to me. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like you're all my family. So thank you. Yeah. Happy to get Jeff. Cheers. Cheers. Oh, social. Congratulations, Jeff. That's amazing. Hmm. Thank you, Rick. Okay. Um, should we, should we skip the correction, um, and just go into the coffee fund and then go into the, uh, cause we, we have this in the intro, um, oh, I don't have the intro, so I don't know what it is. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, let's just, just quickly, because you know, here at the APG, we're all about accuracy. 100%. No, no. um, 50%, 50. accuracy <laughs> is what we strive Better for. Than 49. Better <laughs> You know, somewhere in the bottom half there is what we're shooting for. And, uh, and you know, we pretty much nail it. Um, so, 50%? Yeah. 50% definitely. of that time we're right every time. That's right. So so apparently uh, David is concerned for our accuracy and the fact that we don't have any fact checkers anymore. Uh, so, he, you know, that's what the community is for, fact checkers. And he says, this is David from Leeds in West Yorkshire, England, and have just been listening to APG 425. Six. I was surprised to hear that Captain Nick, being half Aussie, and his dad being an Aussie, didn't know what Anzac stood for. Well, I Ca- got it half right. You so. did. I'm not, wait, I know. That's <laughs> what, what. What more can you expect? I don't know. I don't. It would be foolish to expect anything else. Yeah. Uh, anyway, he said that Captain Nick said it was stood for Australia, New Zealand, New Zealand, and Canada. It actually stands for Australia, New Zealand Army Corps. The Canadians were never part of the Anzacs, but did fight alongside them during the Great War, commonly known as World War One. That's probably what Nick was thinking of, I'd say. Uh, yeah, I, I, to be fair, very few people actually refer to it in its full term. And uh, I must have picked that up years ago because I've always thought I, you know, that was the correct. Sounds reasonable uh, to me. That's what I didn't know that he was wrong. <laughs> when Nick said yeah, it, I don't I think anybody went. Well, there are an awful lot of Australians it. out there who would have been turning in their graves. So oh, I'm going to no. send a general apology out to uh, both Canada because it's nothing to do with you. So go away. And uh, <laughs> state of the Antipodeans. Uh, Cheers, mates, uh, and uh, my apologies for uh, mixing Canada in with your army corps. I, I'm very sorry. <laughs> well, he was very upset. You can just tell, 
you know, from yeah. from the words. They were just dripping with sadness, <laughs> <and> disappointment. <laughs> Those acronyms yeah. still get you every time. They yeah, will. I, know. I was in the Air Force, so what do I know about the Army Corps? Uh, I don't know. No. Yeah. Go. Yeah, my apologies. I should have got that you right. You know, I don't think anybody really was that upset about it, but... You know, again, okay. we except really David. at least except, one person. Except for David, you should have seen my Twitter feed from Australia. Oh, <laughs> oh, ouch! Sorry. Ouch, well, yes. At least you admitted you knew knew the words to Walter and Matilda. Whoops, sorry. Uh, yeah, I do. And uh, there are two uh, songs to sing it, two tunes to sing it to as well. Oh, really? I only know We're probably yeah. We only know the the famous one, I guess. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to do them tonight. Don't worry. Oh, thank you. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's see. And with that, let's just quickly uh, knock out the coffee fund. And oh, can I just have a quick oh, thank you? Oh, wait, wait, wait. Oh, yeah. I, I got so absorbed in the whole. I was trying to interrupt. All about, <laughs> you know, it's all about me and, uh, and staff. Um, but it's not. <laughs> it's it's about all of us. So uh, go ahead, please. I won't Nick. be long. I won't be long. It's just that I've received a couple of very nice uh, handwritten uh, letters uh, of condolence, and I particularly wanted to. Well, I've received a few. Particularly wanted to mention uh, Micah, main, uh, my men, Micah, who composed a lovely letter, and also, of course, our darling producer Liz. So thank you very much indeed. And one final thing is to thank uh, Marcus the man from Omega Tau, who sent me a copy of his new fabulous book, uh, which is called Once You Start Asking, Insight Stories and Experience from T Experiences from 10 Years of Reporting on Science and Engineering by Marcus Volta. And it's quite a weighty tome, and mm -hmm. I'm really looking forward to dipping into it, although there are way too many graphs uh, in there and <laughs> oh. mathematical formulas for the likes of me. Well, now I'm nervous because he sent me a yep. copy as well, which I've not received yet, but I will say thank you in advance yeah. as well. I mean, I've just opened a page at random oh, gosh, there. No. And, uh, oh, that's right. Oh, yeah, I recognize that formula. Yeah. That is, that is but I'm looking forward to reading some of the easy bits. Thank you just very the much. Pictures, then. Yeah, yeah, exactly. the cover. The pictures. And of course, <laughs> oh, you, can, oh, uh, yeah. you can buy that book now. Mm -hmm. I guess it's on Amazon. I, he hasn't said exactly it is, where. Um, it's on Amazon. You can find there it there. There you go. So all go out and buy it, please. Yes. Marcus, the host of the Omega Tau podcast. All right. And that's how many of us were introduced to that man that just was just. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was just talking. Captain Nick. Um, he did a, a, a whole episode on Captain Nick's adventures flying the RAF F4s um, and intercepting the Bear bombers, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Uh, let's move on to Rick. What you been up to, man? Oh, really? Not a lot. I mean, compared to compared to your illustrious last week here and last <laughs> flight with the Mad Dog, what the heck could I say? What I've you didn't have been... surprises and stuff? <laughs> just no. <laughs> Just sat reserve in uh, Cincinnati for a day or two, did a uh, flight down to Miami and back, and then I uh, flew up to Denver and back. Um, uh, but uh, other than that, uh, not so much. Going to uh, uh, Portland tomorrow morning, early in the morning. I'll be sitting there for a day or two. And then, uh, you know, uh, lines came out for the uh, next uh, bid period here. And uh looks like the flying is going to be heavy on the first uh, two weeks. And then. Uh, last two weeks off hopefully so 
but I tell you, I mean, um, going going back to your uh, to your uh, yours and Dana's last uh, flight on the MD eighty, I've uh, it's just just such an illustrious career. So uh, so so amazing to have um, and to, to gather that that amount of experience in a single jet, um, and really get to that mastery level. That's uh, something that I, I I very much look up to, and I congratulate you. Um, tip of the hat to you, sir. Oh, well, thank you. Cheers. Appreciate that. Cheers. Cheers, cheers. And here's to Dana as well. Absolutely. Cheers. Dana, my yes. man, what have you been up to besides just cruising the waters on that yacht? Yeah, the weekend was amazing. I, I get up there and I forget about everything. So um, especially what's going on in the business right now. Yeah, I get up there and, and just relax and enjoy some R and R, it's it's really become my um, nexus of uh, relaxation. So, especially with this week, uh, this week's uh, been a particularly tough one. Especially waiting for this uh, the results to come out. So, let's find out what my future holds, which they're still not out yet. Uh, and that's about it. Really, nothing else to report. And that was you know truly awesome to be there on Monday. Yeah, that was awesome. Um, thank you for for joining us um, because you're such a big part of this and also such a big part of my experience on the mad dog really are. Yeah. It's a brotherhood. There's no question about it. I'm really going to miss it. And uh, truly, you know, I know there are mad dog lovers out there, but uh, very few understand like we do how much of how much of a great airplane that really, that she really is. And uh, I'm Mm. desperately going to miss it. Yeah. But we're not going to miss the coal. <clears throat> no, there's, there I mean, will be some advantages. I'm just trying to, fig- whatnot. I'm try- <laughs> trying to figure out. You might find out your uniforms are actually pale blue. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they're white. <laughs> anyway, um, let's so, see. You know, we have other things to talk about today, so let's move on. Well, um, yeah, as, as Dana mentioned, um, the displacement bid closed uh earlier this week on monday actually and the uh, big computers are crunching away trying to decide where everybody will fall as far as what their new fleet might be or whatever their position might be what their new base might be so a lot of um a lot of downward movement right now at acme and uh so anyway we'll uh, we'll let you know what the result is hopefully by uh, the time we do the show next week you'll we'll know where we're going to be going um, I think I have a better idea than Dana has because there's more uncertainty with his seniority than mine. So, um, most lucky, unlucky pilot. There you go. <laughs> um, well, the rest of us are looking forward to seeing what's what's in store for the future. So, yeah, mm-hmm. man, absolutely. Positive, positive thoughts all around. Yeah. yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be good. It's gonna be good, man. Keep that chin. One up. door closes and another opens. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I get Every to time. learn a new airplane as the first. Well, off, speaking so of new airplanes, this. You know, maybe you'll maybe you'll learn uh, the seven thirty seven. You know, this guy standing next to me here, my very very good friend Jeff. Um, probably wondering why he is in Studio One A at APG headquarters. Well, if you're not, I am. I have no idea why you. <laughs> <laughs> How did this guy get here? I don't know. He just showed up. <laughs> like a- well, actually, honestly. Now, you know, we, we mentioned the Monday and what I thought was going to be possibly my last actual flight on the uh, Mad Dog, but uh, it turns out that I ended up getting another trip. 
just a deadhead up uh, yesterday to uh, Pittsburgh and then uh, back this morning from Pittsburgh to Atlanta. And um, I didn't want to make a big deal of it because everybody was made such a big deal of the uh, thing on, on Monday. So I didn't really want to say much about this. I just wanted to kind of do the thing and, and then just go home and not say anything else. And when I was at the, well, actually yesterday we were, Jeff and I were talking and um, I said, you know, I told him where I was and Jeff lives in the other part of uh, Pennsylvania, uh, north of, of Philadelphia. And, and I kind of joked around. I said, well, Hey, it's not that far. And I said, I have your shirt. Um, if you want to come and get it. And he goes, yeah, right. It's like a five and a half or five, six hour drive or whatever it is from, and you know, we're just joking around and, um, and that was it. You know, I didn't think that anything else of it. And then this morning when I was showing up at the gate, I'm, I almost didn't really see you. I think you had to kind of <laughs> yell at me and, uh, I'm walking by and, and this guy goes, Jeff, <laughs> And it was Jeff at the Pittsburgh airport. He did actually drive from Philadelphia to Pittsburgh uh, to fly with me because he didn't make it on that last flight on Monday. So um, he was able to ride the jump seat even uh, with us uh, from Pitt to Atlanta today. And honestly, for those of you who were with me on Monday uh, flying from Philadelphia to Atlanta, that was actually really my last landing on the MD-88, because today um, the airplane landed itself. It was an auto land because of the um, visibility and uh, ceiling uh, here in Atlanta today. Uh, it was so close that I didn't want a chance having to uh, do a miss and come back around. So we went ahead and set up for an auto land, uh, Category 3 auto land. And I think it was a good decision to make because I'm not sure we would have been able to break out on a Cat 1. Um, it would have been close. But anyway... Uh, the airplane did a pretty pretty yeah. decent job of landing auto land, and uh, so technically my last landing was on Monday. Yep. <laughs> so anyway, so, thanks for coming out. So Jeff is you know we're chatting on yesterday, and as he's chatting to me, I've got my phone open trying to see how am I going to get to Pittsburgh tonight, and I'm looking and I go, there's a flight at six out of Philly to Pittsburgh, but it's like quarter to five, I can't get there and make that flight. I'm going, that's when I said, well, it's a five and a half hour drive. He goes, well, you can do that. <laughs> so we're done. And I start joking with my wife about it. And she goes, well, go. I go, you know what? You're right. So I quick packed a bag, jumped in the car, got some gas and got on the road, got to the hotel about 11 o'clock last night. And uh, of course, the, the, the pilots will understand this. I go to KCM, which is known crew member, how crew members get through security and I get to be selected for TSA screening. Yay. Of course. Of course. Every time. <sighs> well, good news, I had planned for it. So I was ready for that. It was like a 20-minute line. So I go in, I get some coffee, and I'm sitting there drinking my coffee, and I'm not in the gate area. I'm actually in the hallway in a chair. And uh, and Jeff's just, I see the FO come by, and I'm waiting and looking for Jeff, and he's not coming, he's not coming. It's like 20 minutes later, he finally comes by with his breakfast in a styrofoam <laughs> box, and he's just walking by me. He doesn't even see me. Like a boss. Well, I'm not looking like, for anybody. I'll get there when I get there with my breakfast. So, <laughs> can't go anywhere without and I'm going, me. So where's my shirt? <laughs> and he's looking at me with this stunned face. He goes, you didn't really drive. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, um, and then it was a question, oh, am I going to get on the flight again? I go, don't you leave me again. <laughs> so We made sure. He yeah, was I got on the flight, yeah. sat up in the jump seat, and uh, – I must say, uh, it was a joy sitting up there just to watch 
you know, I've known Jeff for nine years now, 11 years now, excuse me, since the first podcast. And it was fun to watch the professionalism go on in that cockpit. It was really a thrill between him and uh, James, the FO. Great job. They made a great decision to make the auto land. Uh, it's funny. I've only ever done one auto land at my airline where the airplane landed. And that was when I was a co-pilot. So to do it in somebody else's jump seat was kind of bizarre. But uh, I'm looking over Jeff's shoulder watching the radar altimeter. And uh, for Cat 1, you have to see the runway by 200 feet. Well, at 200 feet, Jeff is just calling lights, <laughs> which means he sees the approach lights. So <laughs> I don't know if we'd have broken out for a full landing. So it was they made a good call. And uh, it was not a bad landing for an auto land. So no. just been hanging out, got my shirt. <laughs> and uh, I'll be going back. Uh, Jeff's going to take me back to the airport tonight. And I'm going to go stay with my son. So if I had been stuck in Pittsburgh, not a big deal. My son lives about 20 miles away. Oh, perfect. Which if you those of you remember, that's where I was for the Pittsburgh party. <laughs> yes, at so his graduation. Yet so far. Yeah. And for those who don't know, who might not have been uh, listening back then or even back to, gosh, our 200th episode a little while ago, uh, Colonel Jeff, Jeff Felmuth, has is like the number one OG original listener to <laughs> Captain Jeff's podcasts oh, yeah. all the way yes. back from like on the day episode one of Catholic Pilot came out. Jeff I had Felmuth to wait for number two. Don't take that the wrong way. <laughs> I hate doing that. Can I say that? Waiting for number two. Um, anyway, but if you got a good podcast to listen to, it's all right. Um, you know, the waiting for number two part. Uh, so that, so anyway, it's, uh, you know, Jeff, I, I feel like I've known you my entire life, but yeah. it's only been 11 years, which is pretty amazing. Anyway, so thanks for, uh, I said, no, as long as you're here, let's do the podcast together. I'll get you back to the airport after we finish, if we finish anytime soon. <laughs> okay. So now um, I'm looking at everybody Coffee. on the crew. I'm just making sure that we got everybody. Steph? Did Nick talk about anything? He did. he did. Yeah. He did. Okay. You want, you want to say anything else, Nick? No, he's good. Nope. Okay. I'm good. Okay, here we go then. <laughs> Let's uh, do a quick coffee fund. Nothing's quick in this show. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. Want to sing? I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Yeah. All right. The coffee fund. That's what we sing because we like singing. And it's what we sing when we do the coffee fund and acknowledging the folks that are financial supporters of the show. And since the last episode, we have, well, a couple different ways to do this. We have the coffee fund classic method. And since the last episode, we have had uh, Norris Og and Brent Howell uh, contribute and the other way to do it is become a patron of the show via patreon.com. And we have a couple of new producers, Bruce Baker and Brandon Derko. What you need me to do? Never mind. Keep going. Uh, right here. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Oh, no. No. Keep going. I'll talk <laughs> He's trying to type stuff while I'm talking here. And it's not working out. We're not coordinating well here. Oh, my bad. Here we go. Now you can. Um, and we have a new executive producer, which is, or who is, Zebulon Dawson. So thank you very much. 
new executive producer and new producers, Bruce, Brandon, and Zebulon. If you want to join these folks, head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did. We will too. Captain, incoming message. Now, this is the feedback portion of the show, but I, because we have spent so much time talking about all the shenanigans and surprises and celebrations and all that kind of stuff, we are really kind of at that place where we normally do the plain tale, and I think that's what we're going to do. So, command decision. We're going to make that plain tale up front right now. So, sit back and relax and enjoy the third installment of the Ian Palmer interviews. The Old Pilots Playing Tales. The Ian Palmer interviews, part three. Ian, uh, thanks very much indeed for joining me yet again. Oh, it's great. Great to be back. Uh, it's a great story, and uh, I'm really enjoying it. Oh, brilliant. Well, it's great to, great to be back, and uh, it's great to be talking about um, aeroplanes. Oh, absolutely. Um, now, we left last part of the story with you getting a job with a, a great airline, with uh, Monarch, and you realised uh, after a while, though, that you uh, still had a, a drinking problem um, and I think you acknowledged now that that definitely needed fixing. How did you accomplish that? Okay, so I was flying a lot. Um, we were doing a lot of these flights where we would fly um, late in the evening and to the Greek islands, you know, arriving back at sort of seven or eight o'clock in the morning, doing these charter flights. And I remember on the days off, um, never ever, I will reiterate actually, never ever in the uh, aeroplane was I under the influence but on my days off I couldn't wait to get home to drink so I'd get home and I would be fairly out of it and so I clearly knew in very short order that something wasn't quite right I had a few relationships around that time um, nobody would stick with me of course why would they everybody ran a mile I started losing friends and around this time, my parents, uh, well, firstly, my father was diagnosed with, but he had um, fairly uh, type 1 diabetes, so he was quite sick with that. Um, my mother then was diagnosed with uh, ovarian cancer that had spread to the bowel, lung and stomach, so that was stage 4 cancer straight away. And my father then, uh, very quickly afterwards, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and I remember seeing my father on the Sunday night in hospital when we were told that he may not um, survive uh, the rest of the week. And we were by his bedside on that Thursday evening and he died on the Thursday. And again, I didn't feel anything. I had no emotions. Carried on. And this was 2010. Uh, England were playing in the World Cup. Um, I remember it very clearly against the USA. And I remember watching a football game with my mum then in, um, in a hospice. And my mum died. We were, the only thing I can say is that we were by her bedside. And this was very shortly after my father had died. My mother died. And she died. So two, two enormous tragedies. Two enormous tragedies in very close 
In very short order, yes. So it was, I mean, I remember take, I remember pushing my mum in a wheelchair on oxygen to my dad's funeral. Golly. You know, so that was truly the worst experience I think any human being could go through emotionally. But, but not something you were able to process. I wasn't able to process it. And probably uh, more importantly for uh, somebody who suffers with this condition is I was unable to control it. And that was the issue. And it's a control, there's a control elements to the um, alcoholic condition. So I then thought this was great because I didn't feel anything. Why did I think it was great? Because it gave me the opportunity to drink more and everyone would feel sorry for me. I wasn't at work now. I decided to withdraw from flying. Um, so this was happy days for me. I could now just drink as much as I like because I, no one was going to bother me. That's how sick this illness gets. So I then did take up with a young lady who I knew from my childhood and uh, I always wanted to, I kind of always had designs on her, I think, for, from a young age. And I, um, I totally messed it up. Uh, she had a kid and I was awful. Um, but I wasn't flying around this time. But she suggested that perhaps she need a bit of help. I was terrible to this lady. And I went to see my GP, who um, clearly knew what was going on. But he had written these um, sick notes, basically, to say that I was off work with stress. And this was when it really started to take a hold. I decided then, having been left an amount of money, and bearing in mind that uh, one of the things we do with this condition is we like to be liked. <laughs> we have a people-pleasing propensity. So I was giving money away. I was doing all sorts of crazy, uh, explain, uh, displaying really crazy behavior. I decided to go to rehab. Uh, but there was a bit of a problem. We didn't have any money. I'd spent all the money. Oh, Lord. So how was that going to work? So I thought, hmm, I'm going to have to have a loan for this. And I started to get a bit more serious at this point, realizing that we're getting backed into a corner. And my and accountant friend was uh, an executor to the will. And he rang me up, knowing that all was not well, and said, oh, we've um, found some more money in a pension fund which your parents had and in order to go to the rehab the cost of the rehab was £14,000 for 28 days now bearing in mind that the ego was still rife at this time so I couldn't go to any old rehab it had to be the Priory Clinic uh, because that's where all the rock and roll stars went of course wasn't it also I thought it's really screwed up thinking so it was £14,000 how much do you think was left in this pension fund, which the accountant found for me. Well, I'm going to guess exactly 14,000. Exactly 14,000 pounds. Wow. Yeah, exactly that amount. Is that odd? It's strange. Now, this was the first thought that maybe something else was happening. Now, I'm not religious, but I'm very spiritual. And I've realized that, you know, there's something greater than me controlling this whole situation. I got away with so much during that time and I was so lucky to get away with my life because remember this condition takes everything and will eventually take 
you. So I came out of the rehab and the first thing I did, because the ego was still rife, I decided to test if they had actually properly fixed me. So I celebrated with a bottle of champagne. <laughs> now, if that's not screwed up thinking, then I don't know what is. Because I drank this alcohol. Um, of course, clearly, I was nowhere near aviation. I was nowhere near anything. And I was um, in a pretty bad state. So the doctor who was looking after me in this rehabilitation clinic uh, gave me a telephone call. And he said, Ian, uh, we'd like you to, uh, I'd like to come in and have a chat. So the first thing I did was um, I was drinking litres of water, thinking this would hide any sort of alcohol or drug test. Um, I had a shower and I remember trying to clean myself, but I was really hot and clammy and in a real state. And um, I was quite bloated and really, so I went in a taxi and I remember throwing, getting a taxi driver to stop and throwing up. And I got to the rehab and the specialist, a consultant, sorry, who was looking after me there, um, he said, Ian, sit down, we need to have a chat. And this was the turning point because he said to me, and he didn't know whether I was flying or not, but he was aware that I had a license to fly an aeroplane and I was effectively off work with stress. And this is the way you mislead people with this illness. Um, you know, you, you lie. So I said to, he said to me, Ian, you have a choice. You can either stop drinking and fly aeroplanes or you can continue to drink and die. Take your choice. Now you've got two weeks and you need to tell your employer exactly what has been happening. Or you can go to the CAA and explain what's been happening. Because if you don't, I will. And that was a, like a, almost like a mallet over the head. And I was thinking at that time, and this is how screwed up my thinking was, I was wondering how I could manipulate the situation to get, this, get a gagging order over this person. Um, so I was speaking to a solicitor friend. He said, yeah, it might be possible, but not realizing this was the guy that saved my life. <laughs> and what I will say is around that time, I should say that just before my, um, just after my parents had died and just before I had this experience of um, I had changed employer. I decided to get away from um, Monarch, um, and they obviously have since uh, no longer exist, to join the company that I'm with now. And uh, they were, well, considering I was the new boy, <laughs> I couldn't have wished for anything better because I went to the union and I said, look, I've got a bit of a problem. And they said, it sounds like you've got a bit of a problem. And they said, well, we need to, uh, well, there is a drug and alcohol policy in place as there are with any employer worth their salt. Um, there'll be some sort of drug and alcohol policy. And so my union went to my employer and said, one of your pilots has an issue. And they said, oh, right, okay. Um, and he would like to, this is the most important thing. This is the most important thing is that he would like to self-identify that he has an issue. There's a very big difference between self-identifying and being caught. Because <laughs> if you get caught under the influence, that's instant dismissal. 
if you get if you self-identify and say I've got a problem then uh, certainly with my employer and I certainly know for most well, every major airline in the UK if not Europe would have a duty of care then to say okay because they recognized under the World Health Organization that this condition is an illness they would then do all they can to help you and what they did which I will be forever grateful is they gave me a second chance I went to rehab for a second chance and this time I meant business I joined the uh, rehab and what was interesting, there were seven people then on this, I thought it was a course, I thought that I had to graduate and a couple of people left and out of everybody that was on that course um, in that rehab, uh, one of them was quite an affluent businessman who has been sober now um, for the same amount of time and he's gone on to be to do really well in business and uh, but everybody else has since died from this illness you're joking no longer with us so i consider myself to be really lucky and this wasn't a priory type uh, posh rock star rehab this was a gritty down-to-earth rehab where they also meant business and if you didn't abide by their rules you had consequences which would be to clean a room, even clean a toilet. It was all about humility and instilling in you all that had been lost through my career in um, misleading people, in you know having a lifestyle which was totally incompatible with my career. Uh, how do you look back on it now? I look back at it and I think we have a an expression of, well, I thank my higher power, which, yes, for me, is God, but doesn't always work for everybody um, in that sense. But I thank my higher power that my life today is not different. It's massively different. It's like, it's a different world. It's a different world that I you know, now reside in. I, um, I haven't had a drink for uh, eight years almost now. And do, and do you know what, Nick? I have no desire to drink ever again. Um, we have an expression, it's a bit like recoiling from a hot stove. You kind of burn yourself once, you don't go anywhere near it a second time. And now, for me, it's about passing the message on to other people. Um, and I'm sure maybe some of your listeners and viewers will identify um, that it doesn't take a brain surgeon to work out that um, I'm part of a fellowship and that fellowship is very close to the front of the telephone book. Yeah, I, I understand. And mm. the requirements of being a member, as it were, are the, oh, you certainly have embraced, uh, the opportunity to help others. Yes, because we have a really lovely expression and that is, I can only keep what I have by giving it away, by giving it away, by helping other people, by sharing what we call experience, strength and hope. And I think Balpo was reading in their newsletter recently, their magazine uh, called The Log, that actually this illness, 5% of people actually in the world who, who suffer with alcoholism show outward signs of it. 95% of people are hiding this. You know, you would never know. 
you would never know and they probably don't even know themselves so it's a devastating 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 condition one from which you never ever recover from all you can do is arrest it but what i will say is that today i have a life beyond my wildest dreams and what does that mean well it doesn't mean that i've won the lottery and i'm driving an aston martin and i'm now chief pilot of atme airlines not at all what it means is i now have serenity and i'm now happy with my life and i'm grateful i have gratitude so is there any advice you can offer to those who are thinking that they might have a problem absolutely uh, the first thing you have to do is acknowledge that problem you have to say yes i have a problem second thing you do then is you ask for help and you will find that as i said i was astonished the way the moment i admitted this issue the way everybody came running now remember that this is it's a condition that you manage um, but today i have a whole new circle of friends i don't relate at all to the way i was i'm in a new relationship which i've been with kirsty now for five years and she says to me i could never imagine you drinking i could never imagine you being the way i described it's almost as if you know of, I don't mean in the religious sense, but it's almost like being reborn. Well, that sounds fabulous. Have you been able to reconnect with your feelings? Yes, yeah, because when you come into recovery, it's this classic expression that they have. Um, we have um, two issues. Number one, the good news is you get your feelings back. The bad news is you get your feelings back. You know, I start, I start crying now when I see those adverts for the dog's home. <laughs> so it's, um, you, get your, um, you get your feelings back, absolutely. But, you know, I have a very, 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 um, well, I had a very lucky escape, actually. Yeah. I had a very, very lucky escape. What do I have to do now in order to continue on this lifestyle, with this lifestyle? Well, number one, rigorous honesty. Number two, um, actually more practically, is I have to see the um, regulatory body, Civil Aviation Authority, every six months for a, a blood test. Occasionally they'll take a hair test to check if there's been any misuse of anything in the meantime. Of course there isn't, hasn't been, and there won't be. But, you know, it's a privilege now, it's a pleasure to go along there and submit to these tests because every time I'm saying, yes, I'm well. And then they say, they also write me a letter and say, yeah, you are certified fit. That's a brilliant story, Ian. But you touched on a new relationship, and I'm going to uh, ask you to cover that in our next chat, mm. uh, because uh, you ended up in hospital um, for a very different reason. Uh, and uh, I think perhaps uh, we'll leave it there and uh, discuss that and uh, how your career is going now in our next chat next week if that's okay brilliant yeah it'd be a pleasure thanks nick thanks very much have i ever mentioned that i love that music <laughs> once or twice yeah and i love the fact that <laughs> it's so, playing the drums in the background there oh yeah i know that's makes that really special what a great um i love this interview series and i can't wait till the next one where he you're, you you kind of tease some kind of a new relationship 
Yeah, well, of course, uh, you know, it's it's a, a story with a very happy ending, thanks to Ian's perseverance and his strength of character that, um, you know, allowed him to overcome all the problems he's had. He's got one other major problem to overcome, though. We'll find out about that. But um, I, I just got to thank Ian so much for having the courage and the strength of character to um, come out and speak because I know, I, I know without even asking that 99.9% of all the airline pilots out there who uh, suffered or had suffered from alcoholism uh, during their career wouldn't want to tell anybody. Uh, and Ian is telling us all, and I think it's just an amazing uh, tribute to him and also just, you know, it's just something to bear in mind because we know our industry, our lifestyles are often circulate around uh, a bit of booze and uh, it's just worth bearing in mind that not all of us are able to do this in moderation. Uh, there are some people who find it very hard to know when to draw the line and it's not their fault. As he quite rightly says, the World Health Organization defines this as an illness and it's not something to be looked down upon. It's something to uh, try and support people who have this problem and um, to help them through it. So I, I really admire Ian for uh, you know coming out and telling us all about his life story. Yeah, absolutely. I said it last week um, or last time I, I, um, I heard um, your plane tales, uh, Captain Nick. First of all, just my respect for this gentleman. It's just amazing. And one of the things that really strikes me is, is the calmness, the tranquility in his voice, how at peace he is with himself. And 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 what's fascinating about this 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 um, set of interviews is just kind of you know going on that journey with him and seeing him evolve and 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 become you know the the person he is now and that is that is it's amazing. And I'm so glad that we have this platform here to share that story because I'm certain that it's going to help someone else. You know. Yeah. Even just if there's just one. It. Even if it's just one there. person. Yeah, yeah, it'll have been. Yeah, we, we pilots it. are we pilots are are prideful. Just you just hate to admit what? when we're wrong, you know. And no. it's, and it's uh, <laughs> no, no, not us. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm never wrong. No. So I don't know. All type of personalities. No, never. You know. No, it's completely and true. So it's uh, it's uh, it's hard for us to to admit when we're wrong. And so uh, you know this this uh, this really shines a light on 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 an issue that's. Uh, that's important. It's, it's really important to shine a light on this, you know? And it, yeah. Yeah. Well, tune in, stay tuned in for the final uh, installment of the uh, Ian Palmer interviews next week. I'm looking forward to it. Oh yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Definitely. All right. Captain incoming message. Was it last show or the couple of shows ago, um, uh, Nick, you were, you were commenting about um, Professor Jeff's, um, I don't know, question or 
or you had some questions about uh, gravity or whatever. I don't know. Oh, I was dissing gravity. Yeah, I thought yeah. gravity was rubbish. Uh, well, I couldn't understand it because no, no one's been able to explain it to me. Well, I, Jeff got back with us, and um, he, he sent us a link to um, a video, and he's hoping that this is going to help you with that. So here we go. Good afternoon, APG crew. Physicist Jeff here. Last week, uh, pilot Nick had some questions about gravity, and I felt like I had to respond as a physicist. Um, so uh, what he was asking about, or one of the questions was, was how gravity works, right? And, and you know, the Earth, as we know, is spinning. Why don't we actually spin off the surface of the Earth? How are we even able to stay attached to the Earth? Um, I like the kind of playground uh, merry-go-round analogy. So imagine you're going around on a merry-go-round. You do have to hold on to the merry-go-round itself or you go flying off the edge, right? But you think about what happens if you start the merry-go-round really slow. You don't have to hold on very tight. It's only when your mom or dad starts pushing you around and around faster and faster that you really have to hold on and, and risk kind of flying off the edge of that merry-go-round. We call that an accelerating reference frame, uh, you being on the merry-go-round. And we're in a similar situation here on the planet Earth. Now the Earth spins around, and this beautiful blue line here is the equator. You can figure out how fast you're moving at any point on the Earth by looking at um, the circumference, at your latitude, and, uh, and the period, which is a day. So I can take the radius of the Earth, multiply by 2 pi, that gives me the circumference, divided by the day in terms of seconds, and that gives me approximately how fast I'm moving around the surface. And the Earth really is spinning like this. Um, the sun rises in the east, sets in the west. That means the Earth is going the opposite direction, right? From, from west to east, like this. And that's significant if you want to launch spaceships, for instance, right? So next week, uh, SpaceX is planning on launching two astronauts up to the International Space Station. Well, where would be a good place to launch from? Um, if you are close to the equator, uh, you're moving the fastest because you have the largest distance to go in 24 hours. If you're up here at the pole, uh, you're, you're not moving very fast, actually. So if you're wanting to launch rockets, you want to find somewhere close to the equator to launch them from. Uh, so the European Space Agency has a launch facility down here in Kourou. Uh, and NASA uh, launches just up here in Florida. So not quite at the equator, but close. And which way do they launch? They launch out over the Atlantic, and that's going to allow them to use the speed of the rotating Earth. The Earth rotates, the air around the Earth close to its surface rotates as well. And, um, and so when the rocket is sitting there on the launch pad, it's moving about 400, over 400 meters per second um, uh, like this. And that means that it already has a fraction of the speed it needs to be up in orbit around the uh, the surface of the Earth. So, so just something to keep in mind. But as for us and our weight, well, what we could do is we could imagine putting um, Captain Nick here. Uh, we're we're going to assume Captain Nick is a standard male in the summer, and that means in Canada at least he weighs 206 pounds, 93.4 kilograms. So we're going to put him on the equator and just um, work out... Uh, well, we can work out what his weight is. I guess we've got it already um, in pounds, 206 pounds. Um, but the uh, acceleration uh, required, um, because he's going to be moving in a circle, he has to kind of 
hold on to the earth or something like that. Now gravity is what's pulling him down to the surface of the earth and there's what we call a normal force keeping him from sinking into the earth, okay? Now we're assuming Nick is standing on some like concrete or something like that. If he's in one of those Florida swamps, maybe there's not enough of that force. He is gonna sink into the earth. But but if, if you were to stand Nick on uh, a scale on some level ground there, um, what you're gonna find actually is the weight is not actually equal and opposite to the normal force. There's a slight difference uh, and there's a net force towards the center of the earth. So if, uh, if you go through the math, and, and you, you don't all have to do this, but, but if you do, um, what you calculate is uh, the scale for a 206 pound uh, person is only gonna read 205.2, and there's a 0.4% difference um, in terms of uh, the scales reading a little less. Now, if we spin, if, if we're on another planet, for instance, and the planet is spinning faster, it has a shorter period, uh, then the scale is gonna have an even lower reading, okay? But um, with our planet, the way it turns, uh, there's enough gravity to keep us stuck to the surface of the planet, even though the planet is spinning around uh, pretty fast. Uh, so that's uh, just a little explanation there. Now, I know Nick was also interested in um, uh, gravitational waves. Uh, uh, so, so for instance, when, when black holes are spiraling in, uh, towards one another. The reason they actually spiral in instead of just maintaining a stable orbit is because the um, uh, the mass of the black hole is such that it curves space-time enough that space-time ripples, sends waves out that radiates energy and allows the black holes to spiral in again. Um, but that's kind of a large topic of conversation. I didn't think I could quite get to it here. Anyway, uh, love the show. Uh, thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Brilliant. So do you have any questions now? I mean, come on. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's a heavy subject, but is it clear now? Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I'd love to be somewhere on the screen, but don't worry about that. Well, oh, we, were hoping, we would like to take you uh, to the equator and, and leave you there. Now, what I'd like to do is to, <laughs> to work out, uh, if I w w have a weighing machine at the equator and I weigh X amount, presumably if I take myself up to one of the poles with my weighing machine, I'll weigh a lot less. So does that mean um, Inuits uh, are lighter, weigh less than uh, Africans who live uh, in the equator? And my other question is, if you're flying an airplane around the pole um, and then you fly it down to the equator, do you use more fuel when you're at the equator because your aircraft weighs more? Your weight is based on how far you are from the center of the earth. So, and the earth is not a perfect sphere. So like if you're at the top of Mount Everest, you're going to weigh slightly different than you would at sea level. If you're at the North Pole oh, well, versus hang, the South hang Pole. Hang on a minute, hang on a minute. He said that uh, because um, of centripetal force, uh, you're going to weigh more at the equator than you would up near the pole. I don't see how that could work. I don't think so. So, well, who's the doctor? Oh, I have, uh, you know, it's all Greek well, to me. I took a nap. I was waiting for well, the crickets to start. Part of it, but it actually <laughs> was, does have a lot to do with mass. So the mass of the planet and how you, far I you know are you'd have the same mass. That. I'm talking about weight. No, no, not I'm you, just... but I mean the the <laughs> gravity is really. <laughs> oh, I love this. This is this is fascinating. Uh, and I'd also like to know if you try and take off on a uh, freewheeling. Um, 
conveyor belt. Oh, are we going back oh, to this? No. Let's not do that one again. again. It's back. I'm going to set it up on my oh, treadmill. No. Now, that, now that I actually have a treadmill, we're going to set up this experiment. <laughs> How many right. years oh, ago right. was that? A long I time ago. Really to I don't know. Why are we dragging <laughs> this back up again? So, uh, look, I really want to appreciate all the effort he went into uh, with the globe that. and everything. Yeah. That was so. that was very good. Very yeah. Intuitive. Uh, that was no, I thought the earth was flat. So, all of this, uh... <laughs> so I think, you know, honestly, I think that um, Nick just wants you, Dr. Jeff, to send us more videos because he really enjoys listening to you explain all this stuff. Oh, absolutely. And I really oh, do. I want to know. And we do. Uh, all of us do. Why I can't see these gravity waves that seem to be holding me on. To the Earth, despite the fact that I'm belting around at 400 odd meters per second, that's a lot. <laughs> I wish I had some kind of effect where I could just launch Nick up out of his seat and out of the screen. And go, oh, there he goes. Well, if you're moving that fast, Nick, if you hover above the Earth's surface, why don't you end up moving along at that speed? Ah, oh, for the same reason the atmosphere gets carried along. Because ah. I'm in the air, it's being carried along. Um, but there you go. I, I, it's very kind of you to uh, try and explain it, uh, but um, I'm afraid I'm amongst a bunch of dunderheads, and it's trying, to, <laughs> <laughs> trying to get it through to them is impossible. So, huh? What? Uh, <laughs> uh, what are you talking about? Huh? <laughs> uh, thank you very much, Jeff, for uh, sending that in. You're, you're a true sport. And very smart man, yeah. which is why we were all wondering why he listens to the show. <laughs> we'll leave that one alone. Yeah. Um, hey, you know what? We um, got this from Ivor, and I think I have some music that I play for that, but I can't seem to find it right offhand. So I'll just uh, add it in post. The Adventures of... Well, no, this is just Ivor. Never mind. Um, dear airline pilot people, I've been listening to other podcasts. Whoa. I admit Mm. it. I'm slightly ashamed of myself. Not much, but a little. Uh, one of the shows I found was a little show called airline care home guy. The main protagonist in this little drama is a grumpy old retired pilot called Mick Henderson. (laughs) He, he used to fly for some weird outfit called Vestal Pacific or something like that. Anyway, all he does is bang on about when I was a young lad, we did it this way, and how brilliant he was And when he went on an exchange with the Austrian Air Force. <laughs> Lord, Lord help them. Uh, his most frequent visitor is an aging but undoubtedly handsome fellow called Jeff Nelson. <laughs> <laughs> apparently he is of swedish descent but to his credit jeff listens to grumpy mixed stories with patience and air of disbelief and appears that jeff has been putting up with this nonsense for a very long time but he is a man of faith and therefore a good and patient man and he needs to be for every week the grumpy one bangs on about plane falls no plane fails whatever they are but he usually does it for 20 minutes each week poor jeff having to listen to the ramblings of this cantankerous old git every week. But he's not on his own. There are other visitors. One is a younger chap called Diana. Yes, we all think it's a girl's name, but that's his name. Anywho, Diana visits, listens, and joins in the conversation 
now these old codgers mostly talk about airplanes and how great they are flying, how great they are at flying them. Now I believe that Dana might be a pilot too, but he mostly talks about motorbikes and boats. He also dives, whatever that is, T-W-S-S, but it makes a change from, quote, in my day, we hand flew all the time. This is a common theme with the old boys. (laughs) Uh, Yes, it is. Another visitor to the care home for degenerate old pilots is a chap called Hawaii Dick. This is an interesting character, another bloody pilot, but he works for an airline that doesn't have windows for the passengers to look out of. Now, I don't know what shenanigans are going on with this boy's work, but the less said, the better. But the old boys just love to hear about his Delta P, (laughs) the dirty old buggers. Wait, somebody said Delta P. There you go. And finally, they're kept in place by Dr. Stephen, who is, uh, would that be the proper pronunciation? Or Dr. Stephen, maybe. Um, Either one, it could be. Either way. Um, Who is uh, unsurprisingly a lady and a doctor, but a doctor that flies, Lord help us all. Another pilot, just what we need. Dr. Stefan doesn't appear to have a modicum of sense, unlike the others. Doesn't? No, it does. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That was a a, Freudian slip. Freudian, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Stefan does appear to have a modicum of sense, unlike the others, and she therefore keeps the show on the road or in the air. See what I did there? So to round it up, it's an interesting-ish show, but I wouldn't recommend it. Um... It's too familiar to something else. I can't think what, but something very similar. Also, it goes on and on and on and on. Three hours sometimes, occasionally more. Unbelievable, I know, but it's true. (laughs) So to finish, I won't provide a link to this podcast. You have all got better things to do with your lives. Remember, people, wet paint needs to be watched drying. So at all costs, avoid this show. Who needs more pilots telling the world about how great pilots are? So, nighty night from Ivor. I love you all. Some more than others, and with good reason. <laughs> this is brilliant. Wow. That, is awesome. that sounds a be lot. Welsh for chance, would he? Mm. Yeah. He wouldn't be Welsh for chance, would he? <laughs> so, I'm question. wondering... Um, I don't know. That show kind of sounds a little familiar to me, but I don't know. Well, I'm going to yeah, check I it out. put my finger on it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, great airplane geeks. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's gotta be it. Well, you or, certainly need to have a lot of spare time <laughs> or PTUK. Maybe. I don't know. Nope. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, Nick, would you do the honor of reading this feedback from blaster bill? Uh, most certainly. Uh, dear captain Nick, I heard this, the very sad news about your dad, Captain Andy Anderson, and wanted to send you my sincere condolences. I also listened to APG 425 and your installment of Plain Tales, uh, an honorable uh, homage to your dad, which I was interested to hear. A fitting tribute to your dad's legacy and what he meant to you. I'm so very sorry that you couldn't travel to be with him in his final days and completely understand your frustration about being in the UK whilst your dad was in Australia. 
I was thrilled when you interviewed your dad about his flying days and very much enjoyed the photos in your homage uh, of the distinguished Captain Anderson with his RAAF wings and ribbons. And, of course, those wonderful photos, especially of uh, Captain Anderson in front of that magnificent British-built Vickers VC-10. How fitting. Just as an aside, I was a very uh, young boy uh, when I took that with my um, brownie camera. So that was one of mine. Um, if I may, I'd like to share my story of losing my dad in 1987 in the hopes that it will assuage your grief about your dad's passing. It has a similar perspective to yours. My dad is the reason I'm an airline pilot today. He was a U.S. Navy pilot who flew the Lockheed P-2V Neptune and the P-3A Orion during the Cold War, chasing, harassing Soviet submarines. His last posting at Naval Air Station Jacksonville in Florida was due to end in retirement, change of command, in late May of 87, after 30 years of military service. I was a junior in college in North Carolina and was completing final semester exams and once finished was going to join my dad in Jacksonville. I very much looked forward to these visits because it gave me much needed personal time with my dad. We had stayed together in bases all over the US and traveled to many places together. My dad drove a 1983 Jaguar XJ6 sedan which I enjoyed driving as well. When we were together, and I was of driving age, I always enjoyed speeding away with his car and joyriding around town while he worked. I was set to fly from Charlotte to Jacksonville on Monday, and my dad phoned me up to tell me he wanted me to come Wednesday instead because he needed the car Monday and Tuesday and would not be allowed allowing me to drive it while he worked on base. So I changed flights to Wednesday, May the 13th. I woke up that morning to a family member telling me that my dad was involved in a car accident and was in hospital. I was stunned and shocked. I was due to leave for the airport in a couple of hours anyway, so I got dressed and ready to depart. Then came the news that my dad had passed away, not from the accident, but from a massive heart attack. My mother and uncle and I flew to Jacksonville, and we went to the hospital on base. The doctors told us that they worked on him for an hour before ending their efforts to revive him. I was led into a room where the doctor gave me his personal effects. This was extremely hard for me, as there on a table were his wallet, his insignia, his signet ring, his watch, and his dog tags. There was a manila folder with his command pin, his ribbons, and one last item, which, when it was retrieved, made me completely break down in tears, realizing he was truly gone from the earth. This item was his pair of gold navy wings. I hadn't really known or accepted he was gone until that moment, and it was probably the most excruciating thing I've ever done. 
accepting his personal effects. I was 22 years old. Dad was 52. He died two weeks before his retirement date from the Navy. I was now fatherless, and I'm sure you'll agree that no one can replace that important figure in your life. I was so frustrated that I didn't arrive two days prior on Monday uh, instead of today after he had lost his life. It would haunt me for a few years until I realized he wouldn't want me to dwell on it or be miserable. As a parent, I now realize how important it is to have the ultimate desire for our children to be happy. I never got to share anything in my adult life with him. My college graduation, my flight training, my journey to become an airline pilot, my marriage, or becoming a dad myself with two children. Captain Nick, you are blessed with a father who lived a long, prosperous, and distinguished life who got to see you do everything up until your own retirement. I'm so envious of you and so thankful that your dad got to see you grow up and serve in Her Majesty's Armed Services and at Acme Red, we can call it Virgin nowadays, and have your own family. I'm 100% certain he was proud of you and your numerous accomplishments which, as you know, is a son's number one goal, to make his dad proud. You succeeded, and his legacy endures. I congratulate you on your successful career and on making your dad smile. I also want to extend my deepest sympathies to you and your family during this difficult time. I wish you could have been there too, believe me. As far as Captain Andy Anderson, may he rest in eternal peace after such a long, prosperous life indeed, mission accomplished. May he have blue skies and tailwinds. To fly west, my friend, is a flight we must all take for a final check. Sincerest regards, Blaster Bill, Los Angeles. Boeing 737 Captain. Thank you very much indeed, Blaster. That's uh, got me all choked up now. Yeah, you're not the only one. <laughs> yeah. He also yeah. included a, a photo of his father. Um, and um, let's see. Captain William E. Price II, U.S. Navy Reserve, born August 7th, 1934, in Charlotte, North Carolina, he died May 13th, 1987, in Jacksonville. Um, yeah, very handsome man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, love yeah. the picture. Thanks for yeah. sending it. And thanks for the story. story. Yeah. Yeah, that's very emotional. Wow. Yeah, well, well written, well Nick. You just, you, you, you did that very nicely. Yeah, great words. Thank you, Blaster. Very nice. Well, well people that, stop sending me things like this. <laughs> well, that's what we like to <laughs> do. My emotions, my emotions on this this podcast have just done an absolute roller coaster from <laughs> joyful highs, sad yeah. moments to you know, oh, this is hard work, <laughs> and the disappointment of having to deal with us every week. <laughs> I no, think I can get over that. Don't <laughs> <I>? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not too emotionally taxing. 
Yeah. But that's what we like to no, do I, here. We like to make you all cry out there. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I've, I've recovered myself here. So thank you, Blaster Bill, for sending that in. It was really nice to hear those memories of your dad. Sounds like the two of you had a great re- uh, relationship. I'm going to cry again. <laughs> oh, man. Ooh. Yeah. Or perhaps with that, we should continue then. Uh, to something else in the news. So now we're getting very close to the end of our show within 10 minutes. And uh, I guess we should just move right on into, you know, Nick, you had, um, or you had a question from someone in episode 425 concerning the differences between the RAF and the U S air force. And uh, Jim, just a navigator uh, made some audio feedback. Uh, he said the, que- this question touched a nerve because the three years I spent in England as an EF-111 EWO, Electronic Warfare Officer, uh, were a major highlight of my 20 years in the Air Force. And uh, he sent us two actually re- dealing with a relationship um, comparison between the U.S. Air Force uh, versus the Royal Air Force, and also one uh, regarding U.S. Air Force versus Royal Navy. So he had a chance to spend some time with, uh, with both. And I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll play the first one, uh, the U.S. Air Force versus RAF, on this episode, and then we'll save the second audio for our next show. So take it away, Jim. Hello, Captain Jeff and your whole cockpit crew. This is Jim, just a humble navigator from Texas. And I'm commenting on episode 425, the question from J.J. Not Pittsburgh, asking the difference between the Royal Air Force and the U.S. Air Force. I do have some experience in this regard because I did spend three years in RAF Upper Hayford as an electronic warfare officer in EF-111 Ravens. I wound up as the wingy woe for both the Ravens and the Compass Call, C-130 communications jammer. So I had the opportunity to visit a lot of, uh, of other units from NATO and particularly a lot of interaction with the Royal Air Force and the uh, Royal Navy. To avoid this recording becoming way too long, I'll tell you my observations about the Royal Air Force first, and maybe I'll make a part two about the differences with the Royal Navy. Captain Nick mentioned one difference that's definitely there, respect for what we consider rules and what they consider suggestions. For example, we often flew up the English Channel from Central England north We'd turn left at Lukers to go jam an RAF radar. The Lukers F-4s would sometimes screw with us by kind of diving down on us to see if they could get us to react. We were supposed to have a thousand-foot safety bubble around airplanes when you wanted to mess with them like that. I think their eyeball calibrations left a little bit to be desired because their concept of thousand feet was quite a bit different than mine. And they always attacked from the upper right-hand side because they, they knew that there wasn't a pilot in the right seat. The next time I run into their chief of staff, I'm going to suggest they test eyeball calibration for their new pilots because they seem to need a little work with that. I was at some after-work social gathering of some kind. I don't remember why. I think it was at a NATO school, but there was a guy in a flight suit there that said uh, 4-2 squadron. It said 4-2 squadron on it. I was in the 42nd electronic combat squadron, so naturally I wanted to talk to the guy. It turned out he was a uh, RAF pilot in Nimrod's. And he f- flew for their 4-2 squadron. 
I flew the 42nd squadron because they spell out the letters one by one for two squadron as opposed to us who would be 42nd squadron. The other thing I noticed about this particular Nimrod pilot was he was incredibly old. Talking to him, it turns out that in the Royal Air Force, you can be 50 years old, be a squadron leader, which is the same as I was a major in the Air Force at that time, and you just fly airplanes. That's what you do. You come to work, fly airplanes, go home, that's it. You are not competing to be chief of staff of the Air Force, which is something every U.S. Air Force officer is expected to do, and when that Air Force American Air Force officer gets to the point where he's not chief of staff material, we kick him out or retire him. So that's another big difference. We kind of exchanged visits with the Canberra ECM squadron. I, Sorry, I forget their designation. I was allowed to crawl around in their airplane. It was interesting. It felt very, very World War II-ish in the general way it was laid out, the way the, the front seats were arranged and the bubble canopy. They had some pretty cool electronic toys in there. A lot of the Canberra systems itself looked uh, right out of World War II. A lot of big switches, big round dials, Frankenstein switches. It was a very interesting airplane. I liked those guys a lot. They were a lot of fun. And in the interest of keeping this from not going all day, which I certainly could easily do, I'll just mention one other thing that I don't even think the RAF guys themselves realize. The Royal Air Force fighter community is held at high esteem by the U.S. Air Force fighter community. This has to do with the fact that they are kind of kept on a loose leash and they're kind of unpredictable maybe, maybe than another Air Force might be. I'm looking at you, France. The RAF does a lot with a little bit and that's always impressive. They can react pretty fast because they are a small service and they take advantage of that in lots of lots of different ways. Just listen to some of the stories about the Falklands War. But I think a big part of the Royal Air Force reputation and culture dates back to World War II. It was mainly the uh, Royal Air Force that when Britain stood alone for two years, standing between the free world and Hitler, the Royal Navy and especially the Royal Air Force were the wall that stood between the rest of the free world and Hitler. They fought the Nazis. They were usually outnumbered. Technically, many of their planes were inferior to the Germans, but they just kept coming and kept coming, and the Germans couldn't figure out how they kept coming back and back and back when, by all logic, they should have already been wiped out. As polite and reserved as the typical RAF officer is when he's not drunk, they're really a bunch of badasses. I'm very glad that we're on the same side because I wouldn't want to go up against the Royal Air Force, particularly not anything close to equal numbers, if I didn't have to. So God bless the RAF. This is Jim in Texas. Thank you for listening. What'd you think about that, Nick? I love that. Jim, Jim has, has absolutely brilliant. 360 Squadron were the squadron you couldn't quite uh, remember. Um, they were the jammers. And uh, uh, let, let us not forget that uh, the American Air Force also had Canberras. So whilst they looked like something built of the Second World War, you guys flew them as well. Um, I'm trying to think, B-57s, you called them yes. or something? Yeah, built under license. I'm sure you tarted yours up and didn't have all those steam-driven valves and things. But, um, <laughs> yeah, he, he's quite right. In a smaller Air Force, you can 
possibly react a bit quicker. And um, I think a hard-earned um, disrespect for authority uh, has is something of a um, a watchword uh, that the RAF pilots often use, uh, which is why we always uh, fighter pilots certainly um, dress with our top buttons undone. Um, because in uniform, uh, when you're always supposed to have your top, you know, all the buttons done properly up, the fighter pilots uh, didn't quite like sticking to all the traditions of the Air Force and used to purposely leave their top buttons undone. Used to annoy the uh, um, senior officers enormously. Um, uh, by the way, can I, if I just put this one picture up, we mentioned uh, um, intercepts uh, and... Uh, you know, um, the Russians uh, and flying F-4s. I recently found this photograph, uh, and it's is. Uh, you remember me mentioning I used to intercept bears? I always wonder what it looked like from the other side. Well, this is what it looks like from the other side. Oh, now I can't. It's the background there. Damn. Oh, it's a background? Yeah, now I put it in the wrong spot. That was silly, uh, wasn't it? Let yeah. me just change that and make it a uh, regular overlay. An overlay. It's a nice background, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Anyway, see if we can get there. There we go. Ooh. That apparently is a uh, picture of a phantom taken from a bear bomber. Uh, so. Oh, I oh. see now what he's talking about that eyeball calibration. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Yes. Was that a thousand, thousand feet right bubble. there? Uh, thousand, yeah, yeah, a thousand, thousand inches. Feet. Yeah, exactly right. So, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, I must acknowledge the uh, and thank the, um, I, I can't remember his name. It was a Russian name of the fine Russian bear um, crew member who uh, put that up on a, on a uh, site uh, I know of. So that was great. Yeah, that's really cool. It's a great photo to have. Yeah. 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 So what do you say about the uh, the officers uh, when they weren't drunk? They were badasses. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so is Nick always drunk? I hope so. Probably. <laughs> Probably. All right. Well, that's awesome. Thank you, Jim. And then we'll hear how he uh, his experience with and how he uh, feels about the Royal Navy on. You know what the Royal Navy always used to say about the Air Force? What's that? We didn't we didn't have traditions, we just had bad habits. <laughs> the the Air Force does? Yeah. Ah. Okay. Well, the Navy are very much the older service. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You guys are just young pups, right? Yep. All right. Well, thank you, Jim Howard. Just a navigator, he calls himself. And uh that is going to be it for today. I'm sorry that we didn't play a lot of feedback, but it was a kind of a special show in a way. And uh, thank you for bearing with all of us uh, regarding the other stuff. And uh, next week we have a chock full feedback notebook, and I'm sure we'll be getting more great feedback from you all. And you can do um, you can send us feedback by sending it to feedback at airlinepilotguy.com. You can go to our website, a bunch of different ways to um, contact us there and send us feedback. And um, let's see, speaking of the website, uh, lots of great stuff there to learn about the crew and the community and 
uh, more information about Plain Tales. We have the APG library, uh, merchandise, um, so much more. So please check out the AirlinePilotGuy.com website. And we're on social media. We are. Please head over to Twitter and you can find us at APG Crew. All of our individual Twitter information is pinned to the top of the page. That's probably the best place to find out when we're going to be recording these episodes live. And if we make any last minute schedule changes to those live recordings, you can also head over to Facebook.com slash Airline Pilot Guy. Please um, see us there. Lots of good uh, information, news stories, uh, aviation related things being shared by the community and also Instagram at APG Crew. So look forward to seeing you on the social meds. Excellent. And uh, what about Hillel? Do you think he's ready? I think Let's I should. I think I turn on the. Yeah, I thought I heard the shower running. Yeah. Hillel! Hello. Wait, I think he's turned up. Hello, it's time for the slack. Okay, but I'm dripping wet. Well, I hope he towels off before yeah, he gets here. Towel on at least. There's a, a lot of <laughs> <laughs> APG listeners. Please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha, Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Thanks, Hillel. Appreciate all the help. No way, Jeff. I'm social Good job. (laughs) And with that, again, thanks everybody for uh, watching, listening, reviewing, and telling your friends all about the APG. We love you, and we'll see you next week. Wishing you clear skies and limited visibility and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Cheers, y'all, and so long, Mad Dog. See y'all next week. It'll be a good one. Bye, everybody. Those graveyards are waiting. R.I.P. The Mighty Dog. Bye, guys. Good night, all. a good good pilot till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats airline pilot guy I fly America oh airline pilot guy he can't land in heavy fall I got no friends cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline pilot guy I fly America Airline pilot guy